running out and buying this single. The Beach Boys of the 1980s, everybody. Jesus, I'm very Welcome, Neil. You're welcome, Neil. This yes. is hell. All right, then. You know, Alex, it's a little bit disheartening when you see a screw on the floor in the studio and you have no idea where it goes because you don't know what piece of equipment is suddenly vulnerable to collapse. Our hell this week consists of the U.S.'s supporting anti-democracy liberals against Chinese-backed pro-democracy nationalists in a key geopolitical location. A past guest got in an online spat with that tool Steven Pinker, who argues everything's always getting better, so why change a thing? Which is completely misguided. We'll learn that we have a lot more access to a lot more money than we're being told. So much money that we actually have enough to address climate change and inequality. Yes, we can afford the Green New Deal. Then we're on to Brexit and exactly how the UK got to Brexit, and to nobody's surprise, it's all because the ruling liberal elite abandoned the class war. Does that sound familiar here in the United States? And our last guest on this week's show will discuss her book of love poems to incarcerated black women throughout history and their fight for black humanity. Of course, we'll have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin, which I will tell you about in a moment. And I'll be honest, I really don't know why... I watch so much news. Bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996, this is how this week's live for our show is being broadcast from the studios of Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM Evanston, streaming live right now and podcast in its entirety shortly after at thisishell.com, as well as broadcast in an abbreviated one-hour form on Chicago's South Side on Lumpen Radio. And in Moscow... Idaho on Radio Free Moscow. Both of those shows broadcast on Sunday mornings. Our guests this week are nationalist populism can be some pretty volatile and scary stuff, so it's no surprise the U.S. is backing a more liberal political party. But what happens when that representative of Western liberalism decides that the only way to save democracy is to not allow the people to vote? That's apparently what's happening in the confusing political world of Sri Lanka. We'll figure it all out when we speak to, live from Toronto, urban design and critical theory scholar Kanishka Gunwardena, who wrote the Jacobin article, The Crisis in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is being convulsed by political crisis. A lasting solution will require transcending the politics of ethnic nationalism and neoliberal technocracy. Kanishka was trained as an architect in Sri Lanka and now teaches urban design and critical theory at the University of Toronto. Kanishka is the author of the 2015 book, The Future of Planning 
at the end of history. In the second hour of this week's How, we start with the return of anthropologist Jason Hickel, who will be on to discuss his Guardian article and the fallout from that article. Bill Gates says poverty is decreasing. He couldn't be more wrong. Since the article was published, Jason's work has been criticized by Steven Pinker, who argues everything is always getting better, so why change a thing? And that's in line with Bill Gates thinking that poverty worldwide has been dropping consistently for two centuries, and that proves capitalism works, especially the latest version of capitalism, which is showing more progress in fighting poverty than any earlier rendition of our economic system. Of course, none of that's true, and for you to believe it to be true, you have to believe that colonialism was awesome for the colonized. We'll find out how wrong Gates and Pinker are and how bad our global economy really is for us people living on this globe when we speak with Jason, who is the author of The Divide, A Brief Guide to Global Inequality and Its Solutions, which was not only discussed with Jason on our show last year, but was one of the books we selected as the best to be featured on This Is Hell in 2018. Jason spent a number of years living with migrant workers in South Africa, studying patterns of exploitation and political resistance in the wake of apartheid. Following Jason in the second hour, we'll talk to critical geographer and political activist Lavinia Steinfurt. She wrote the Transnational Institute article, The Power of Public Finance for the Future We Want. It turns out we can afford to stop climate change and stop inequality. We actually have the money and resources to fix the things we need to fix. It's just that they don't want us to. They don't want you to know we have access to so much money. Why and who are they? We'll find out when we talk to Lavinia, whose article draws on research from Transnational uh, Institute's forthcoming book, Public Finance for the Future We Want, which highlights the real-world practices and proposals that can transform our money and finance systems for the 99% instead of the 1%. The book argues for public money, democratic banking, and cooperative networks to make the case for life-sustaining economic democracies. As a researcher at the Transnational Institute, Lavinia is working on public alternatives such as re-municipalization of public services, a just transition toward energy, democracy, and transforming finance for the 99%. Lavinia wrote the chapter, The 835 Reasons Not to Sign Trade and Investment Agreements for the book, Reclaiming Public Services, which is also published by the Transnational Institute. During the third hour of this week's four-hour bonanza, we have the return of... Live from London, writer and broadcaster Richard Seymour, who this week posted the article Brexit and the White Working Class on his Patreon page, patreon.com slash Richard Seymour WTF. Richard's writing takes us back to when the whole Brexit thing and the rise of the right started in the UK, the 1980s and Thatcherism. But don't feel all smug lefties. It's also labor's fault as they turn their back on class like they were told to do by Thatcher. That unwillingness by the Labor Party to address class grievances made British workers susceptible to those exploiting racial grievances, which is how we got to the rise of the right in the UK. And here, when you think about it, the Democrats did the same thing, abandoning workers to the right and their racial grievances. We'll learn how the Brexit dumpster fire got started when we hear back from Richard. The last time Richard was on our show was back in 2017. He was on right after the elections that unexpectedly showed major gains for the Labor Party. Richard's most recent book is 2016's Corbyn. The Strange Birth of Radical Politics. He's a contributing editor at Salvage. His most recent writing at Salvage. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, and you can find out more about his work by listening to his podcast, which is called 
Media Review at Teleser. Media Review at Teleser. In the fourth and final hour of this week's This Is Hell, scholar and writer Damaris B. Hill is author of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, The Incarceration of African-American Women from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland. Damaris's book, a collection of love poems to incarcerated black women throughout history, reveals the long and rarely acknowledged American presumption that black people are less than human. Damaris explains how black women have been leading a fight for their very humanity since the colonial era in the U.S., We'll have a conversation with Damaris about what mass incarceration means for black women today and throughout history. Dr. Hill is a writer whose books include her most uh, recent work, The Fluid Boundaries of Suffrage and Jim Crow, Staking Claims in the American Heartland. Damaris serves as an assistant professor of creative creative writing and African-American and Africana studies at the University of Kentucky. And during A Moment of Truth, Jeff Dorchin handles the dinosaur problem. And like I said earlier, I'll tell you why I really got to stop watching the news. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you? Uh, do you know what the word cephalogical means? Yes, I do. Oh, damn. Did you know that before you read Richard's article? No, I did not. Uh, I play do you know a- what ecphatic means? Uh, no, I didn't get it's that far. another one that I had to learn this week. I, I play a little game every time I read something from uh, Salvage or Richard, which is uh, how long I can go, uh, how many paragraphs in I can get without having to look up. A, uh, a word I didn't know. And cephalogical did me in in uh, paragraph four. That's <laughs> if you're assuming the first sentence is a uh, paragraph standalone. Oh, hey, one thing. Lavinia is uh, first. Oh, Lavinia is first. Yes. Oh, it's, that, uh, it's that 10 o'clock slot dyslexia. Lavinia, then I, Jason. You, I don't think you had it right in the calendar then. Oh, damn it. God damn it. I even checked the calendar. All right. Brave enough to, to be live. Dumb enough to be goofy. Stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure. Uh, my bad. I did have it wrong on the calendar. Yeah. This week's hangover cure is turmeric, fennel, ginger, mint, and lemon juice tea. In that horribly headlined article we cited for last week's hangover cure, how Esquire editors get over a hangover, Esquire's video editor, Dom Nero, writes, As someone who has struggled for most of my life with gut-slash-intestinal issues, that slash is probably a problem. <laughs> Uh, hangovers can be especially debilitating. There doesn't seem to be a clinical consensus on how to treat a sensitive stomach, but I found that a concoction of turmeric, fennel, ginger, mint, and lemon juice often does the trick. Get some food in your belly, eggs, cereal, rice, nothing crazy, and heat up a kettle. Mix the above into some boiling water and let it cook for a bit. Sip it throughout the morning, and your stomach will be returned to its original pre-fireball shots at 3 a.m. state. That makes this week's hangover cure turmeric, fennel, ginger, mint, and lemon juice tea. Oh, don't you hate that title of that article, though? Good Lord. How Esquire editors get over a hangover? I don't want Esquire editors to get over their hangover. I want them to be plagued by it until their next issue can't be published. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. This week I had horrible nine circles of hell flashbacks. For newer listeners, I used to post the nine stories that I thought were the most important news stories of the day, every day of the week, Monday through Friday. From the very beginning of our show, I thought our website would be or should be or could be a site that would compete with other news portals back in 1996 when we started and become the place where people would get their news because I believe that I could select the top news stories of the day better than the network news was. 
And then every night, I would watch all three network TV news shows live simultaneously, and I would tweet live throughout their broadcasts. It was awful. I was glad to provide a service for our listeners and visitors to our website, but the agony of having to watch the nightly dreck and be fully aware of all the real important news they were ignoring was more than disheartening. I think it was actually destroying my heart. I would get a lot of listeners thanking us for this service, but after a while, I just couldn't take it anymore. This, that horror came rushing back this week because I forcibly reminded myself of what Noam Chomsky once told me about the news. The more you watch, the less you know. On our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Maybe for the last time, I watched network TV news so you don't have to, and I was miserable. On the podcast, I go story by story of the three major non-cable TV network news outlets and explain how they rationalize U.S. empire and continuing an unwinnable war, how they explain that everybody's racist, so apparently nobody's racist, The networks cover what's not news, but what the networks think is news, even hyping their non-news events with countdown clocks until the non-event begins. I'm thinking of you, State of the Union Address. And more than anything, they promote their own media industry and celebrity and misinform old people about those damn kids today. While I hope the Patreon monologue was very informative and helpful. Doing the research, watching hours of network TV news, and then writing that monologue was a freaking nightmare. I was so visibly, and for our podcast listeners, vocally shook that when it was all over, Alex suggested that I stop watching the news on a daily basis. But that's why it hurt so bad this week to watch the news. See, I quit watching the news regularly a few years ago ago, and dipping your toe back into that cesspool of misinformation leading to disinformation will make anyone watching depressed or more depressed than they were at the beginning. No, I'm not upset over all the bad bad news on the news. That's not what depresses me about the news. I'm upset there's so little bad news on the news. Horrible news is happening all over the world. Horrible news that's caused by the U.S. and U.S. foreign and trade policies. And more of that needs to be on the news. For instance, on our show next week, we'll be talking to an East Africa-based writer about the secret U.S. war in Somalia. Yeah, we're at war in Somalia, too. Not that you would know if you watch the news. Where the U.S. is at war doesn't really seem to matter to the news. And in case you're wondering, the U.S. currently has its military engaged in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, Niger, throwing the Korean Peninsula as that war never ended, and I still think I'm forgetting a couple more. The networks have become so pro-war that over the holidays, NBC and MSNBC commentator Bill Arkin resigned publicly due to the network's unquestioning support and utter lack of criticism for war. As Common Dreams reported in a biting resignation letter, longtime NBC News reporter, commentator, and military analyst 
Bill Arkin blasted the corporate media network for embracing U.S. national security leaders and generals while, quote, ignoring the empirical truth of what they have wrought. There is not one country in the Middle East that is safer today than it was 18 years ago. Indeed, the world becomes ever more polarized and dangerous. I find it disheartening that we do not report the failures of the generals and national security leaders. I find it shocking that we essentially condone continued American bumbling in the Middle East and now Africa through our ho-hum reporting. And that's what I remember from doing the Nine Circles of Hell and live-tweeting the news every night. They ignored the wars the U.S. was fighting around the world on a regular basis. It's not that they have only refused to show dead U.S. troops on TV news, which they have, so we don't get a visceral understanding of the horrors of our wars. Now they just ignore the wars completely. Why bother the American public with information like where their country is fighting wars? That's why I quit watching the National Network TV news on a nightly basis. I, I just couldn't take it anymore. I want bad news, the news that we need to know no matter how uncomfortable our complicity in that bad news is. If it bleeds, I want it to lead. If it is news that is a matter of life and death, but especially death, it should top the news because life and death are the only experiences all of us humans share in common. No, I don't want a broken window in a small city's downtown to lead the news or a bullet hole discovered in an old abandoned building from who knows how many decades ago. Uh, but life-threatening actions. Hell yeah, that should lead, especially when the killing is being done with public money by the military or the police because those are deaths where the public, the viewing audience, is actually complicit. And the more they bleed, the more they should lead. The more people who die, that should be a bigger story, not dependent on their geographic location. If 93 Syrians die, that's a bigger story than one photogenic person missing in your community. Back when I posted the Nine Circles of Hell, I repeatedly noticed how the networks prioritized news happening within the U.S. over international news, which has seen a precipitous decline in coverage since news media outlets became more focused on profits than journalism. Foreign news bureaus are expensive and hurt the bottom line, so the news industry started covering less and less bad news from around the world, even if that bad news was caused by the U.S. Back then, I also realized on a nightly basis how many people are dying around the world, and network TV news watchers had no idea. In the earliest days of the Syrian civil war, the nine circles would lead with yet another report of large numbers of people killed by the Assad regime. And there wouldn't be one word on the news. The same thing happened back during the Iraq War, and under Clinton, the U.S. daily bombing against Iraq was never discussed. And it all came rushing back to me this week, in waves of grief and depression. The network news is a wasteland of nationalist, patriotic, fear-mongering, sometimes feel-good stories of resilience, or whatever is the positive word of the day. Noam Chomsky was right. I actually feel like I know less of what happened in the world this week because I actually watch the news. Which makes me very proud to, yet again, remind you and say, this is not the media. This is hell. And if you want to hear more monologues like that, only better, you can find them at patreon.com slash this is hell. This week's question from hell is, why are you in trouble online? What are you in trouble for 
online. What are you in trouble for online? All replies right on air during the third hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets a This Is Hell stainless steel coffee mug, which you can see online at thisishell.com when you click on support. Again, the question from hell is, what are you in trouble for online? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the U.S. is supporting a political party that wants to save liberalism by abandoning democracy in a geopolitical hotspot with China. More and more people are falling into poverty, no matter what Bill Gates and Steven Pinker want you to believe. We do have the money and resources to stop climate change and inequality, but they don't want us to know our biggest global challenges can actually be fixed, whoever they are. Brexit and the rise of the right in the UK is all because of Thatcherism and Labour following suit by abandoning class grievances. Black women, even incarcerated black women, are on a mission for black humanity. And during a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin handles the dinosaur problem. We'll also have Rotten History, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what happened on this week's and last week's Patreon podcast of This Is Hell, again at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We also want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. And we'll tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell in the geopolitically important Indian Ocean uh, island nation of Sri Lanka. Citizens are being given two options, nationalist populism or Western liberalism. So you can probably guess which side the U.S. is supporting and the one China backs. Problem is the Western liberals aren't too crazy about democracy and have proven to be incredibly corrupt, while the national populists want to take power in a not-so-legal way. Here to help us understand what's happening in Sri Lanka and what that's, this might mean for the U.S. and China, urban design and critical theory scholar Kanishka Gunwardena wrote the Jacobin article, The Crisis in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is being convulsed by political crisis. A lasting solution will require transcending the politics of ethnic nationalism and neoliberal technocracy. Welcome to This is Hell. Hi. Uh, hi, Kanishka. How are you doing? Good. Happy to be here. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate yeah. you being on the show. You know, it, right here at the beginning of in your article, you talk about how uh, they that Sri Lanka needs to transcend the politics of ethnic nationalism. That's being supported by China and the po- politics of neoliberal ten- uh, technocracy. That's being supported by the United States. To what degree is China being pulled by those two powers? And to what extent does uh, Sri Lanka believe that they are a victim of essentially a kind of tri- uh, proxy war between China and the United States? Yeah, I think, Chuck, uh, you know, just before you called me, you summed it up pretty well, you know, what's uh, happening in Sri Lanka. Uh, I would just like to add, uh, you know, to the sort of the very first question about the role of China in uh, Sri Lanka. It, I wouldn't go so far as to say that you know, China is uh, directly supporting, uh, you know, majoritarian nationalism in Sri Lanka. You know, I think China is interested in doing business, right? And uh, so Sri Lanka, uh, uh, 
factors into uh, Chinese policy uh, by virtue of being a strategic location in the the extremely ambitious and grand uh, project, the infrastructure project called uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, the the Silk Road, the one belt, one road uh, project that links China to Europe through both sea routes and uh, 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 you know like over land, right? And uh, so Sri Lanka uh, happens to be uh, located in a strategic place. Uh, on the sea route of the Silk Road project, and uh, so uh, naturally, you know, China wants to have some influence, uh, you know, in Sri Lanka to, you know, for Sri Lanka to be uh, cooperative, you know, to uh, uh, with the <coughs> the Silk Road project, right? And uh, so. Uh, but historically, in uh, Sri Lanka, the 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 more sort of nationalist uh, of the two main political parties has been friendly towards China, and uh, so they are more allied with uh, one of the two parties, you know, namely the Sri Lanka Freedom Party, the party of the former President uh, Mahinda Rajapaksa. So, particularly during his last to uh, uh, regimes, you know, from 2005 to 2015, uh, China has invested a lot in Sri Lanka. And much of that is connected with the Silk Road the project. And But I don't think, you know, beyond the political economic uh, or the geopolitical economic interests, uh, they, uh, the Chinese have a, you know, special investment in any kind of nationalism in Sri Lanka. So they're just looking to do yeah. business, and they don't care who, who yeah. the party is in charge, if they can do business with that yeah. party. Can yeah. they do business with the uh, Western liberal-backed government of the, the party that's <clears throat> ruling parliament? Could they do business with them, or are the is the Chinese support pushed by the Western liberal-backed uh, parties toward China? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, they uh, the the more <coughs> uh, uh, extremely neoliberal and Western oriented, uh, both today and historically, of the two <coughs> main parties in Sri Lanka is the United National Party, you know, which is the major partner of the, uh, the coalition that is uh, uh, <coughs> in uh, power right now. In the parliament, and uh, the so that they, uh, I think, have historically been more aligned to uh, you know the Western, you know, uh, capitalist countries, and uh, so they, they, uh, the, the, but even the, the you know the the present regime that is the UNP. Uh, led regime that came into power in 2015. You know, when they first came into power, you know, they made a lot of noise about uh, kind of uh, stopping and doing away with some other Chinese uh, investments, uh, particularly, you know, a very uh, important or uh, like an influential project uh, right in the city of Colombo called the Port City, which is a uh, Kind of an extension uh, into the sea, you know, on reclaimed land, uh, 
right next to the financial district and the very heart of Colombo. Uh, uh, almost like a new international finance center, you know, like a Dubai-like kind of uh, the massive development, you know, according to the scale of Colombo. And uh, uh, so the UNP government when they first came into or the coalition government led by the UNP in 2015, they were like immediately put a stop to construction and you know appear you know made a lot of noise about uh, <coughs> uh, stopping this project. But in the end, you know, were compelled to continue it. You know, with Chinese investment. You know, because you know Sri Lanka as a country needs credit, needs uh, investment. In infrastructure, uh, otherwise, you know, you you know, a country like Sri Lanka cannot think about development, you know, with without uh, uh, certain kinds of you know uh, foreign investment, you know, in infrastructure, trade, and so on and so forth. So, uh, so even with the the present regime, you know, which is more explicitly and unapologetically, I would say, neoliberal, uh, the you know the Chinese are involved. You know, so so the Chinese influence has not really gone away because of the regime change, but there's always a conflict. You know, like a tension. You know, the the Western countries, and in this case, you know, because of the geopolitical situation in Asia and South Asia in particular, uh, India seems to be you know clearly uh, aligned with some of the Western interests. Uh, in uh, in this kind of conflict and tension, uh, so there's pressure on uh, the Sri Lankan government to shift their investments more towards the Western uh, countries and away from the Chinese. You know, but uh, but it's a uh, it's ongoing tension, and uh, <clears throat> but I don't think the Chinese influence uh, is going to. Uh, go away anytime soon. So why can't Sri Lanka transcend the politics of ethnic nationalism and neoliberal technocracy? Why isn't there an effective, popular alternative to the two parties that are right now controlling uh, controlling Sri Lanka, because Sri Lanka does have a parliamentary government, parliamentary style system. So yeah. you would expect more powerful parties because there is a better opportunity for that in a parliamentarian system. So why are they so stuck between these two parties that you think they need to transcend? Yeah, I think in this, uh, this is a good question, a difficult question, you know, from to respond. To I mean, you know, to easily come up with an answer <clears throat> uh, in terms of you know from a left perspective in Sri Lanka, but I think the situation in Sri Lanka is uh, uh, in with respect to this question is not radically different from you know other situations such as uh, India or you know uh, uh, you know I mean we can even talk about the <laughs> United States you know but the uh, the because uh, you know the, the the reality is that you know with after decades of neoliberal development because you know even the you know Rajapaksa regime I would say uh, is you know when it comes to economic policy is not you know 
significantly different in terms of its uh, uh, like neoliberal orientation right and uh, the the <clears throat> The, so after decades of you know neoliberal development you know which really started in sri lanka in you know i would say in 1977 78 you know with the uh, regime of uh, the unp government of uh, president uh, of first prime minister and then in 1977 president jr jawardhana uh, so since then you know it has been pretty much uh, you know uh, nearly you know Uh, uh you know three three four decades of pretty much uninterrupted uh, neoliberal development which has led to a lot of uh, economic uh, uh, polarization uh, also uh, clearly seen in uh, you know an uneven development within the country uh, uh you know the form of development that favors the city of colombo and you know the, the urban areas at the expense of the uh, rural areas and the smaller towns so there's a spatial unevenness as well as well as a socio economic unevenness to the development that we have uh, witnessed in the last decades and uh, so all of this creates a lot of uh, discontent and uh, so the this discontent has been uh, understood and uh, imagined uh, in terms of uh, <clears throat> and in some ways also organized in terms of uh, an ethnic division as well as a class division but the expression of these discontents and you know these kinds of uh, social and uh, spatial polarizations in sri lanka have been expressed in terms of uh, ethnic identity you know so nationalism has become uh uh the dominant kind of uh, ideological response to the 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 uh, the socio economic and spatial polarizations uh, that have resulted from the kind of uneven development of neoliberal economics uh, in sri lanka Uh, so uh, yeah as this is going to come up on uh, yeah. in other conversations on today's yeah. show to what extent then did uh neoliberalism yeah. push the people of Sri Lanka away from liberalism to what extent are we seeing the end of liberalism in uh in um, Sri Lanka because of the illiberalism done by the liberal party yeah i think the you know the Yeah. <clears throat> the develop like you know the uh, execution of neoliberal policy uh, in you know not only in sri lanka but in other parts of uh, you know other similar uh, situations around the world has not been uh, a very democratic exercise uh, so it always required a certain amount of uh, uh authoritarian you know political uh, force and and this has uh, uh, been the case in sri lanka from 1977 until uh, now uh, and in in a way like you know b- both parties have uh, <coughs> uh, uh you know there's not much to choose between the two major parties when it comes to the uh, you know uh kind of the you know, what you call illiberalism you know of the neoliberal project so the uh so uh, currently you know in the 
the Jacobin article that you uh, mentioned that I wrote, uh, you know, there were in, in the recent crisis, I think the <clears throat> one of the uh, uh, things that became clear is that, you know, there is a, actually a contradiction between, you know, liberalism and uh, democracy, you know, in, uh, in Sri Lanka. Uh, so the so on the one hand, you know there there is the liberal idea of you know parliamentary uh, uh, procedures, uh, rule of law, and so on and so forth, and uh, and on the other hand, you know this uh, kind of a strong you know nationalist populist uh, uh, kind of a political ideological force, you know that uh, you know exist in some kind of a conflict, you know, with the ideas of uh, constitutional and political liberalism. Right? Uh, so, uh, so this, uh, I think, was fairly clearly uh, evident in the recent crisis in Sri Lanka, I think. So the uh, the question that about, okay, what could, uh, why isn't there a more uh, left or a progressive option Emerging outside of these, uh, uh, you know, neoliberal uh, kind of technocracy and uh, uh, nationalism uh, of uh, nationalism in Sri Lanka, I think you know there are all kinds of uh, smaller, uh, you know, grassroots levels initiatives, protests of, for example, the. Uh, estate, you know, people who work in the tea plantations in the central areas and protest against the privatization of education and, you know, various other strikes, uh, campaigns for media freedom and, you know, other sort of more democratic initiatives. But but the more uh, promising of these uh, kinds of uh, mobilizations, uh, they uh, have... uh, happened outside of the major political parties or you know the you know the formal kind of political uh mechanisms of uh, you know the outside of the party political structure you know so outside of parliament right and so these forces are not very uh, although they exist you know they are not as powerful in the state you know, in the parliament and, you know, in the, when it comes to lawmaking and policy making, uh, uh, because the parties themselves have uh, very thoroughly invested in either or some combination of uh, neoliberalism and nationalism. And the party structures themselves are not democratic at all. You know, so they are kind of very, I have characterized them as, you know, in what I have written as the more or less, you know, still traditional feudal structures, you know, so uh, uh, it's very difficult to imagine uh, a radically or genuinely democratic uh, kind of force emerging from these, uh, out of these, uh, you know, established, but very backward and feudal and authoritarian party structures even though they all exist within the formally democratic uh, system. 
Your article is about the crisis that took place last year in October, the crisis in Sri Lanka. And you write that there was no shortage of drama and spectacle in the early days of turmoil. Parents were advised to cover their children's eyes when footage appeared on TV from Parliament, where proceedings were disrupted by members of Parliament engaged in fistfights, flinging furniture, drawing knives, and throwing chili pepper at ostensible opponents in the chamber. Curious foreign journalists, seasoned diplomats, and local NGOs minding human uh, rights rushed to warn of an impending bloodbath in such wishful thinking one could be forgiven for sensing a yearning for external intervention why did parliamentarians why did why did that get into fistfights why did it deteriorate to that kind of physical confrontation on the floor of parliament what was the what was the passion behind mm-hmm. that fight yeah the the passion behind that fight was uh, the 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 president, uh, you know, Sirisena, uh, uh, you know, was in a kind of a coalition government with the uh, 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 was with a in a coalition government with a prime minister who was from the other party. You know, I kind of, uh, I mean, this is kind of a confusing thing even for Sri Lankans to understand. So let me kind of quickly try to explain. Right. The, 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 so what happened in the 2015 uh, presidential election was that, uh, uh, the you know, everyone thought that, you know, I think uh, President uh, Rajapaksa was going to win another term, you know, because he had just, uh, Tinkered with the constitution, reduced and like eliminated the term limits, you know, the two term limit on the on presidency, so he could run for a third term. And then uh, at the last minute, his sort of uh, like a senior minister in his party broke away and ran as the opposition candidate in the presidential election, uh, which was held on the 8th of January 2015, and uh, and and managed to defeat. Right, and that was uh, Sirisena. So, Maithripala Sirisena, so who was uh, a senior minister in the Rajapaksa regime from you know 2005 to 2015, broke away and ran against Rajapaksa, but with the support of the the more neoliberal right wing, you know, United National Party, uh, uh, and won the election. And of course, you know, uh, so this was a bit of a surprise for a lot of people, but uh, in Sri Lanka and maybe perhaps outside as well. And uh, for the reason he was able to, uh, because, I mean, to understand the background, you know, Rajapaksa was, you know, had enormous popularity, especially among the, you know, single Buddhist sort of, uh, you know, more nationalist oriented uh, 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 people uh, because he, uh, won the war against the Tamil Tigers, you know, in 2009, right? And, uh, you know, under extremely controversial circumstances uh, involving accusations of uh, human rights violations and uh, and so on. And uh, the... Uh, but anyway, he was extremely popular at that moment uh, uh, for having uh, ended the war against the Tamil Tigers, you know, which had been going on since the uh, you know early 80s and uh, the uh, uh, but you know in his second 
uh, uh, the in his second term from uh, 2010 to 2015 i think you know there was a lot of discontent with the style of government you know lack of uh, you know uh, the nepotism and uh, the you know the more authoritarian features of uh, that regime became uh, uh, kind of to prom into prominence and you know so there was a lot of dissent also and but above all the failure to really politically address the roots of the ethnic conflict uh, in a i would say an unprecedented opportunity after the end of the war and uh, uh, all these kinds of problems uh, you know led to the defeat but uh, so there was a lot of expectation that you know the new regime of uh, 2000 and january 2015 would usher in an era of uh, democracy media freedom uh, uh, you know all the good things that you know liberals want in a democracy uh, but uh, but that uh, those expectations were rapidly evaporated due to uh, you know all kinds of uh, problems of the you know government uh, that came into power the united Na- national party led government that came into power uh you know in 2015 right and uh, so after, and and the the relationship between the president sirisena and uh, his prime minister the leader of the unp uh, rani vikramasinghe didn't uh, uh, work out too well you know so they were from two different parties uh and uh, and uh, the <clears throat> so that relationship also broke down <clears throat> and there was a <clears throat> uh, all kinds of <clears throat> new corruption scandals that came out uh, you know there was a uh, you know what is uh, known as the bond scam in sri lanka uh, uh, uh involving the uh, <clears throat> trading of central bank bonds where you know basically a case of uh, uh you know the uh, like money laundering uh, of a like a you know you know in sri lankan rupees you know they say the total damage to the economy caused by this uh, scandal is in the region of uh, like a trillion rupees you know but anyway these are difficult figures to estimate but it is a enormous uh, uh, disappointment uh, to the expectations of uh, uh, like a good government you know democratic uh, transparent uh, and so on and so forth that people wanted when they voted against i think rajapaksa in 2015 january but all those expectations <coughs> uh, uh, were disappointed and the president at the you know in uh, uh, towards the end of last fall uh was i think thinking about his own prospects of you know running for a second term and you know he kind of felt that you know he had a better chance to do this with uh, not with the current prime minister but with his uh, former boss you know the former president rajapaksa so he tried to uh, he dismissed uh, uh vikramasinghe uh, uh, from the premiership and appointed rajapaksa and tried to form a new government uh, by convincing some members of parliament to cross over to their side 
uh and you know it didn't work out in the end uh but you know through all the fist fighting you know ch- throwing chili powder in parliament and all that happened in the early days of this conflict you know so uh, so that was essentially about uh uh president sirisena's uh, dismissal of uh, abrupt i would should say you know dismissal of uh, uh prime minister rajapaksa and the appointment of the former president uh, raj uh, mahindra rajapaksa as the new prime minister and his and their attempt to form or uh, ill fated attempt to form a new government you know so that was a kind of a confusing moment and people uh didn't behave very well in parliament and they uh the supreme court eventually overturns that appointment of rajapaksa as yeah. the new uh prime minister they reinstate the old prime minister who's uh, and at, during that time uh the president dissolves uh parliament so yeah. uh, at that point um the uh the new prime minister gets back into power he's able to form a government and the parliament is back in session Yeah. that would so you point out that the way in which the uh, Siranisa government was uh, appointing Rajapaksa that was yeah. method methodologically challenged and yeah. it was eventually shown to be illegal by the yeah. Sri Lankan Sri Lankan uh, Supreme Court at the right. same time you have the the more liberal party trying yeah. to avoid having a vote which is what the uh what the ruling party wanted to have they wanted to have a new vote on parliament in january which didn't happen yeah. so you have yeah. this weird contradiction of the liberal yeah. party trying to avoid a democratic vote yeah. in order yeah. to stay in power so are exactly. both parties then whether yeah. it's the ruling party or the party that's ruling in parliament are they both trying to get power in unfair ways yeah well i mean the 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 debate at that point was uh, the as you said the you know the president sirisena and you know after dismissing the uh, pr- prime minister uh, from the you know more right wing or neoliberal unp prime minister vikram singh from office and appointing the more nationalist uh, you know let's say uh, prime minister rajapaksa who was also the former president uh <clears throat> the you know that uh, the uh, that part of the operation was deemed to be uh, you know was called into uh, you know questioned by the court of appeal actually you know uh, and uh, and while that inquiry was going on uh, the uh, the 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 supreme court uh, 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 you know ruled that uh, the you know the you know so when the the citizen and rajapaksa failed to kind of get more people you know, onto their side and in the meantime the you know importantly there was also no confidence motion passed against rajapaksa in parliament you know against the attempted new government and so the uh and at that point they uh, the president uh, uh dissolved the parliament you know in order to have new elections in this sort of confusing situation uh, so that uh, you know uh, there could be an election and people could you know have a vote and then decide okay who they want to be in parliament and what the government ought to be and uh, 
the but in the meantime the supreme court said the president's dissolution of the parliament is uh, unconstitutional right and uh, so the uh, so the uh, unp government led government they did not want to go to an election because they thought they were going to lose you know so the more new liberal you know the more western uh, oriented party in this case uh, uh want you know wanted to stay in power <clears throat> but by appealing to the constitutional uh, constitution and you know the supreme court and so on but without uh, going for an election uh so the constitution itself i would say was a you know there was some ambiguity about it because it was uh, recently attempted by the new government and then recently amended by the new government that is to say just soon as they came into power in 2015 uh and it was not exactly clear who whether the president had the authority or not to dissolve the uh, parliament uh, uh, at that time you know so now the normal duration was supposed to be a minimum of uh, four and a half years so this was you know a few months before four and a half years but uh, anyway there was some ambiguity you know and uh, in the constitution the way it was written and but anyway the supreme court ruled that you know the president could not dissolve the parliament uh, uh, that it was unconstitutional uh, but during this ambiguity you know while everyone was debating whether uh, it was uh, legal or not uh, the dissolution of the parliament uh, the it was interesting to see the the liberal you know were against the elections and you know the nationalists or you know the other party was for elections and um, so this shows sort of the uh, i think this go like is an a uh, clear sign of the populist uh, you know appeal of the nationalist uh, uh, parties uh in this uh, kind of context you know so uh Uh, i mean the situation now is that of course you know you know there will be elections uh, uh up you know <clears throat> within the coming uh, you know first the presidential election in about a year and followed by a parliamentary election and there are of course overdue provincial elections you know to the nine provincial councils of sri lanka uh which have not happened uh, according to schedule either and uh, so so there was a contradiction i would say between uh, kind of you know the uh, democratic forces and the you know liberal forces you know but the democratic uh, forces were also you know populist nationalist Uh, right. Uh, yeah. I, I've got uh, one last question for you. We've been speaking yeah. with urban design and uh, critical theory scholar yeah. Kanishka Gunwardena. He wrote the Jacobin article, The Crisis in Sri Lanka. You can follow Kanishka on Twitter at idialectic, idialectic. Uh, that's I-D-I-A-L-E-C-T-I-C. One last question for you, Kanishka. And yeah. the question that we always, our final question for all of our guests is what we call 
the question from hell, the question we might hate yeah. to a- ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response, and I'm not too sure yeah. which one of these this is going to fall into. Sure. Yeah. Now, both parties, as you've shown, both leading parties yeah. within Sri Lanka, are yeah. also uh, corrupt. You have uh, you write yeah. that in a stunning TV interview on December 7th, President Serena yeah. broke the taboo of revealing this public secret of inducements to members of parliament to join a coalition government. And you say yeah. that one of the reasons those inducements may not have worked is because of the bond scandal that the Liberal Party had been involved in, that might have actually bankrolled their ability to keep their members from jumping ship and joining the other side, as is typical within uh, Sri Lanka. So you also write that uh, the real intent of the authors of the 19th Amendment, that was the 2015 uh, uh, Constitution, was to fully abolish the executive presidency, which would present uh, Wickramasinghe with the prospect of becoming the head of state in the next election by virtue of being the leader of the party, the leader in parliament, so he would become the next president. So to what degree are the brutalities that Sri Lanka has experienced Mm -hmm. since the ending of the Civil War through today, Mm -hmm. how much are they due to and caused by the executive presidency, how much are neoliberalism in the Tamil War, the really horrible, brutal end of the Tamil War, how much were those brutalities caused by the president? The, the, uh, you mean the office of the executive president? Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. So the, the, yeah, I think the, the, it does bear some responsibility, you know, like uh, the, uh, but I'm not sure whether, <clears throat> you know, uh, abolishing the office of the ex- executive president is, uh, ne- you know, uh, uh, necessarily going to uh, uh, improve, you know, democratize the situation a great deal. But I think, uh, uh, you know, this, remains to be seen. Uh, but, you know what we can say, looking back, for sure, is that you know the uh, you know the office of the executive president uh, has been uh, very instrumental in uh, first the introduction of you know neoliberal policies uh, in an authoritarian way to Sri Lanka from 1977, uh, 78 onwards, and then also in the uh, uh, it has in the office of the executive president has also been extremely instrumental in the uh, Sri Lankan state's uh, approach to the ethnic conflict. Uh, and you know there are of course you know uh, different opinions about this. You know some you know on the nationalist side you know this is uh, the executive presidency is supposed uh, you know highly valued because. Uh, you know, according to the, their perspective, you know, without uh, this kind of, you know, office of an executive president uh, and, a, you know, the war could not have been won and we would still be uh, in, a, in a war situation and probably the country could have been uh, uh, divided and so on, right? And uh, the on the other hand, you know, uh, I... Uh, my own view is that uh, the um, you know it is uh, the it could lead to more democracy to get rid of the 
uh, executive presidency uh, but uh, uh, it could also lead to some uh, 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 you know like the you know like that alone is not uh, sufficient you know what i point out in the article that i wrote, that you mentioned is that you know the for me more important would be to reform the structures of the political part, major political parties themselves to make uh, introduce democracy uh, more democracy at that level you know so for example you know in compared in comparison to even the usa you know uh, you know it is very hard for me to imagine a genuine democratic pro- progressive uh, kind of a uh, politician coming into prominence through one of the two major parties right so whereas in the you know usa now you have uh, somebody like you know alexandria ocasio you know like uh uh uh, uh cortez uh, you know genuinely progressive voice in my view but you know because of the way the primaries work you know uh, in the us sort of system you know somebody like that can become a congress uh, person right and so i can't imagine you know with all the bribes and structures of patronage and you know pyramids of privilege you know that govern the party political structures uh, in sri lanka uh, it is hard to imagine for me a uh, radical uh, democratic uh, progressive kind of uh, voice emerging from within those structures so anybody who comes through there is already highly compromised i think <laughs> and so uh, real prospect for democracy for me includes the radical uh, restructuring of the party political kind of apparatuses but also uh, we have to bank more on the capacity of uh, these more autonomous uh, uh, democratic uh, uh, mobilizations uh, uh, and uh, imagine more creative ways of strengthening their influence on the political processes of Sri Lanka. Kanishka, thank you so much for being on our show this week. Live from Toronto, that's urban design and critical theory scholar Kanishka Gunwardena. Check out his article at Jacobin, The Crisis in Sri Lanka, and follow Kanishka on Twitter at idialectic. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you, Chuck. Take care. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. We actually have the money and resources to tackle the worst aspects of climate change and inequality. Well, not we, not us here at This Is Hell, but collectively, we. We can do both, address climate change and inequality, and not go broke, saving the planet from environmental devastation and saving its people from economic devastation. So where is the money coming from, and why aren't we doing something about global warming and poverty already? We'll find out in a few when we talk to critical geographer and political activist Lavinia Steinfort, who wrote the Transnational Institute article, The Power of Public Finance for the Future We Want. It's time for, maybe, possibly, I don't know, I think he's got Lavinia on the line already. We might have to push back net rotten history, which is fine by me. Let's see. Uh, This week's question from hell is, what are you in trouble for online? What are you in trouble for online? All replies read on air during the next hour of this week's show. 
This week's winner gets a This Is Hell stainless steel coffee mug, which you can see online at thisishell.com when you click on support. Go to thisishell.com, click on support, and you will see all of the stuff that we give as gifts to people who support This Is Hell. Again, the question from hell is, what are you in trouble for online? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you have one. Coming up on this week's show, we do have the money and resources to stop climate change and inequality, but they don't want us to know our biggest global challenges can actually be fixed. Brexit and the rise of the right in the UK is all because of Thatcherism, and afterwards, labor following suit by abandoning class grievances. Black women, even incarcerated black women, are on a mission for black humanity. During a moment of truth, Jeff handles the dinosaur problem. We'll have all of that plus rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what we're up to on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Of course, the question from hell. We also want to thank some listeners for supporting the show and sharing the show online. And we'll tell you what's happening on next week's show on next week's broadcast of This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly... And sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell to fight climate change, to end inequality. It's going to cost a lot of money, too much money. The Green New Deal, that fantasy is too expensive, and we'll go broke saving the planet and its people. At least that's what we're being told repeatedly, over and over again. But what if we do have the money and resources to address climate change and inequality? but we're just not doing it. Here to help us understand, critical geographer and political activist Lavinia Steinfort wrote the Transnational Institute article, The Power of Public Finance for the Future We Want. Welcome to This is Hell, Lavinia. Hi, Chuck. Thanks. Uh, uh, thanks for having me. The article draws on research she's doing for a, a forthcoming book from the Transnational Institute, which highlights the real-world practices and proposals that can transform our money and finance systems for the 99%. As a researcher at the Transnational Institute, Lavinia is working on public alternatives such as remunicipalization of public finances, a just transition towards energy democracy, and transforming finance for the 99%. You can find out more about the Institute at TNI.org, and you can follow Lavinia on Twitter at L. Steinfort. Uh, what about the New Deal makes you hopeful? You write that it, you write it may not be a new idea, but the speed with which the Green New Deal has gained traction in the U.S. is remarkable. Potential presidential candidates are already embracing the call, and it's firmly on the ground for the new Congress with 40 Democratic members demanding a firm plan be drawn up. What about that makes you hopeful? Because Every time I have any hope for any new program like like this, it always gets squashed by either the practicalities of uh, polit uh, political parties or it gets squashed by, uh, you know, corporate interests. So what makes you so hopeful of this Green New Deal? Um, that's a very good question. Um, I think um, what makes it so special and timely is that this Green New Deal is um, not only fighting climate change, but puts 
economic and racial justice at the center of transforming um, society. So it's um, going beyond the clear and very important, of course, climate rhetoric, but it's just not enough and it won't work to um, just push for a carbon neutral economy. And it's amazing that they have in their plan to do um, to develop a carbon neutral economy in 10 years, but they combine that with then economic and racial um, uh, equality and justice. So we have to think of the big picture, and I think the Green New Deal is doing that. Um, and besides, it's really being being pushed for by so many thousands of, of young people who have the energy, who are going to do office visits throughout the United States um, so that uh, representatives are embracing this and to push for the actual legislative changes and policies. So I think, yeah, it, it's a new phase. And, um, and there's always a risk of it being squashed, but there is so much momentum and there's political momentum where um, over 60 Congress uh, people are embracing it. Um, and not just that, so then the whole youth movement behind it is just impressive. But even, I would think that even if this fails, this is a step in the right direction because this may lead to something else down the line. Nancy Pelosi said in an interview with Politico on Wednesday, uh, she said this about the Green New Deal. It will be one of several or maybe many suggestions that we receive. The Green Dream or whatever they call it, nobody knows what it is, but they're for it, right? She was obviously being very dismissive and condescending of anybody who was supporting the Green New Deal. To what degree do you think the Democratic Party, as it stands today, is ready to embrace a Green New Deal? So I think at the moment it's not about the Democratic Party where the change will come from. It, the change will come from all those movements that are rising up and that have been fighting for this for for years, and that there's a new momentum with new progressive Congress congresswomen and men um, that also um, don't look at the corporate sector, but look at, at public ownership, at democratizing the economy to make this work. So it's, it's not just one piece of the pie. It's really looking at, at transforming the economy on a, on a bigger scale and really putting people um, and ecological concerns at the center of that. So it won't come from, from one resolution, obviously. Um, it's it's a long-term strategy, and we have to get ready so that when the next crisis, the next financial crisis hits us, we are collectively prepared. And that's why the essay, um, The Power of Public Finance for the Future We Want, is, is reclaiming the narrative of money and finance from technocrats and corporations so that we demand the popular decision-making power over how our economies are run. And I think for that reason... The Green New Deal is a step in the right direction, especially because of the people power behind it. You're right. What is remarkable is not the new Green Deals uh, or the Green New Deal's uh, popular resonance, but the growing political acknowledgement that the government has the power to create the necessary trillions of dollars to not only address the climate crisis, but also tackle inequality and transform the economy. Is the growing political acknowledgement that the government has the power to address the climate, uh, the climate and transform the economy, is that only happening on the democratic, liberal, left side of the political spectrum? Or do you think this is also a growing awareness on the right or people who call themselves independents? Is this just a growing acknowledgement that's happening on the left? Or do you think this is happening across the political spectrum? Yes, that there is 
ne necessity of the federal government to take action when we talk about the United States, but also um, for the national government, for example, in the UK to take action. I think there's, there is um, a tide where even on the right, um, you see politicians, um, very conservative politicians saying these private finance mechanisms, they don't work. And to give an example of that, um, you see, for example, in the UK that in 2018, Carillion, this massive, the most, the biggest construction company in the UK collapsed. And that a few months after, um, the Tory government, the conservative government actually said, we won't go into any new public finance initiatives. And that is massive that a conservative government is saying that. Um, when you see that happening in the UK, this is something that's going on on a, on a much broader scale in other countries as well. And, and it takes time, um, but we're getting there, I believe. You're getting there, but let me just ask you really quick. Uh, wh why is the growing public acknowledgement that the government has the power to address the climate and transform the economy? Why do you think that's happening now? What were the circumstances? What were the causes that led us to suddenly have this pu public acknowledgement that we do have the power, we do have the money, we do have the resources to address climate change and inequality? Well, the... The, the biggest turn was, of course, the global financial crisis of 2007-2008, because after that you saw in, Europe, in, in the European Union, in the U.S., but also in Japan and the United Kingdom, that the central government said we need the central bank to create money, to create trillions of dollars, trillions of euros, to um, push and, and put more money in the economy because otherwise we will stagnate and we end up in this huge depression. And it became a recession after all. But the fact that the government at that time and still to some extent um, is using their democratic powers to create money, but for the wrong results, right? It's um, buying up corporate and government bonds so that it just pushes up um, shareholder prices. This is the wrong dynamic, but it does show that governments have the democratic power to create money, and that money can be created in a way so that it ends up it's being spent into the real economy to pay for our infrastructure, to update that for an energy transition, to rebuild our public services. Um, you see that we can, we can turn that discussion into uh, a public money supply that meets our everyday needs. That was the quantitative quantitative easing that was supposed to uh, that we were told uh, saved us from the worst aspects of the financial collapse in 2008. That money was immediately created so they could bail out the banks. What does it say to you about uh, the United States, about our government, about our the economic system when we can find the money to bail out banks, but we can't find the money to address inequality or climate change? It simply says that our uh, politicians are too close to the corporate sector, are, are listening to business, what their interests are, and that they still believe in this trickle-down economics where shareholder prices will, and when we push up those shareholder prices and the values of these big multinational companies, that that would uh, result in spending into, into the real economy. And that just doesn't happen because everyone who owns shares can just make much more easily money into the financial market. So we have politicians that still believe that myth, that fairy tale, and we need to show them the evidence that um, points in so many uh, ways to the fact that private finance is just 
super expensive. So as I wrote in that essay, you see that when public projects are uh, privately financed, like the building of schools, that that is 40% more expensive. And this was a figure put out by the UK Audit Office, so a very mainstream status quo uh, institution. And more and more evidence like that is, is showing how um, public-private partnerships, which is a specific um, uh, new phrase to say privatizations of public services, um, how private finance is, is, is extracting um, the wealth and um, yeah, all that we need from public services in the private interest, right? So um, you have a major campaign um, across the United Kingdom which defends uh, the national health system, the NHS, and um, the new Labour uh, uh, Party, they are in favour of renationalizing um, the rail, mail, water and energy. So this is really um, um, putting all the evidence out there that um, we have been... Um, yeah, we have been screwed by, by these um, corporations which have promised us more investment, lower prices, better service quality, and the opposite has been true, right? So luckily, you see the tide turning and, and um, over 835 uh, deprivatizations worldwide in 45 countries, and it, it puts um, economic alternatives back on the agenda that um, communities, workers, politicians on the local level can, can much better provide um, quality public services for all. So these are the, the kind of economic democracies um, I refer to in my essay to show that um, we can, we have them. They are already happening, we, not only in, in, um, across Europe, but also in a, in a state like Kerala, the southwest of India, where you have cooperative social solidarity economies that um, make sure that cooperatives can thrive on a, on a statewide scale. And when we connect that to the narrative of a, of a new politics for money and finance, we can actually transform and, and mobilize um, social majorities. And I think that is what we need also to make something like the Green New Deal work um, and to, to force politicians to live up to, to promises they're making now. Not only were we told there is no alternative but privatization uh, during uh, Thatcherism, but we were also told then back in like the late 90s, early 2000s, when people were talking about deprivatization, that it was really difficult to do, that once you privatize something, it was really difficult to deprivatize it. You talk about how 835, you found 835 locations where this has happened, this deprivatization. How difficult is that deprivatization? Should people not be turned off by deprivatization because they're being told it's an institutional or systemic, uh, not necessarily an impossibility, but there are many obstacles to hurdle? Yes, um, to turn back a privatization to reclaim public services is tough, but it's completely worth it. So. It needs some preparation, and it's very important to engage the workers of a company to uh, work together with the communities, and ideally communities are pushing their, their city council to reclaim uh, a specific service. Um, there are concrete examples that show that it's actually economically uh, cost-saving to reclaim uh, a water service. To give an example, in Paris in 2010, they remunicipalized the water services, reclaiming it from the giants. Veolia and Suez, and it saved since then on an annual base 30 million euros. 
But then again, this, the benefits weren't only financial. So the water tariff went down. In the run-up to the remunicipalization, they created a water observatory so that citizens could keep their company accountable. And they also included workers and, and civil society representatives of the board of a company. So now I'm, I'm pointing more towards the benefits of remunicipalization. And of course, it's tough, but you can see that it leads to, to yeah, so much more community well-fitting, so to say, on a local level. So um, they also did an, um, an estimation of how much it would cost to nationalize, for example, the the um, energy companies, the big energy companies in the UK, and they counted that in 10 years it would pay for itself back, right? Because when when um, profits don't go to shareholders but are reinvested in the infrastructure, in lowering tariffs, you uh, you you are better off in the long run. So it does pay off, and you have to be aware of the challenges, and it will be uh, a long process. Often it takes a few years, but that is also time to engage uh, society to make sure that, that actually it's, it's not a top-down um, uh, public company, but it's actually participatory and, and democratically organized. What would you say to someone who argues that because it threatens shareholder investments, therefore deprivatization must be worse for the economy, that uh, government run is not as good for the economy because you're not investing in the government like you invest and create money through a business. Yes, the shareholder investment argument um, comes up um, so often. Yeah, I would imagine. The problem, is then, <laughs> the problem is then clearly that these investments don't happen. So when you look at the investments happening after a privatization, it is really not adding up uh, to what the promises were initially. And you see very often that public-private contracts, um, which are actually always in the benefit of the private sector, um, are very difficult to renegotiate. And when um, a contract is breached by the private company, then it's it's very difficult to make sure that they actually... um, follow up on their promises and their commitments. So in the end, these investments are not happening and there are there's just plenty of evidence out there again. So, for example, in Lesotho, um, this landlocked country in South Africa, um, one single hospital that was privately financed, so it was in the arrangement of a public-private partnership, it swallowed up because it failed the equivalent of half of the country's health budget. That's massive. Um, and in this, at the same time, the private company earned 25% of profits over its investments, right? So um, the, the, the slight bit it invested, um, it got so much profit from that small investment, and at the same time, it cost the country half of, the, of its health budget uh, or the equivalent of that. So um, just to put in perspective what the, what the investments are actually uh, doing with a, with a population and how it's not ending up where they should be. You write figures produced by the World Bank and the OECD, that's the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, misrepresent the value of public finance by pretending that public banks have only 2 to $5 trillion U.S. in assets. With the many trillions that are needed to finance the climate infrastructure needed to combat the climate crisis and bring about the energy transition, this amount would be a drop in the ocean. 
Why do you say they pretend that that's how much money we have access to? Are the World Bank and the OECD purposely trying to deceive the public into thinking that they do not have access to the resources that they actually can access? Are they actually are they actively misleading or deceiving the public into thinking it can't do the things it wants because it can't afford the cost? So it's not about intentions here. If they are actively misleading it or not, the point is that they are um, not providing specified calculations on how they come to that figure on the one hand. And then when you do your own math and Thomas Mouroy, um, a professor at SOAS University in London, did that for us for the forthcoming book, uh, Public Finance for the Future We Want. And when you just calculate and accumulate all the public banks' assets um, worldwide, then you would have um, close to 700 public banks, so 693 to be specific. And at the same time, the assets of these banks are over 37 trillion U.S. dollars. Um, and that doesn't even include the pension funds, the sovereign funds, and so on. So um, in total, the public financial institutions um, have together uh, a worth of 93% of global GDP. And this would be um, sufficient to really, yeah, come through with, the, with financing the social sustainable development goals and implementing the Paris Agreement and go even further than the Paris Agreement because that is even not enough to, to fight uh, the climate crisis. So it's good to, to actually do the math yourself and, and with the whole of civil society and the critical um, uh, research organizations to see what the figures that um, the World Bank, the IMF, um, the OECD are providing, what that is based on because it's it's when you just say such a figure often enough it 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 yeah people think that this is um this is what uh, the the reality is and that we don't have any public finance available to um to finance and to pay for these 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 massive challenges of our time of jobs and climate and public services well actually yeah these could be Massive game changers, right? Public finance, when we actually democratize our public banks and so on. And there are examples of democratic public banks, right? As in Costa Rica, you see Banco Popular, which is owned by the workers of Costa Rica. So I think we have to shift the debate and, 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 and um, define the frame and the narrative ourselves instead of um, um, falling for the, the myths that these organizations are provi- providing um, since since decades, right? So we need alternatives, and, and therefore we do we need to do our own math. <laughs> and if we can find the money to bail out banks, we can certainly find the money to address inequality and climate change. So um, if uh, privatization, as you were pointing out, is more expensive, I was thinking, you know, why privatize? So, well, the other promise from privatization was it was more efficient, that privatization was cheaper and more efficient than having government-run business. And that government-run business always leads to corruption. So is privatization any more efficient and any less corrupt than having a government-run, having a publicly financed solution? Definitely not. Of course, there is corruption over the whole spectrum, but it's so much more difficult to hold a privatized um, service or a private company that is in charge of a public service accountable because they have um, all kinds of of legislation and lobbies in place to make sure that uh, you cannot access 
easily the, the contract and the, the, the financial situation of a company, which makes it very difficult to actually get all the information to, um, to reclaim a public service, but it's possible. It's just a very long and tough struggle. Um, so to come back to your question, because it's so intransparent, unaccountable, um, these contracts with, with the private sector, it's very difficult to, um, to make sure no corruption is happening. And, of course, you also see on the other side that um, uh, a public, publicly run service, of course, there can be corruption, but there, there, is, um, there are certain accountable uh, mechanisms in place to make sure that, that um, you have new people on the board, to make sure that those people that are in charge of the corruption are, are uh, hold accountable. And that's just way harder with a, with a privatized uh, company. We have been speaking to critical geographer and political activist Lavinia Steinfort. Lavinia, I've got one last question for you. Lavinia wrote the Transnational Institute article, The Power of Public Finance for the Future We Want. You can find out more about her article and the upcoming book that is going to be part of by going to the Transnational Institute's website, tni.org. And you can follow Lavinia on Twitter at L. Steinfort, S-T-E-I-N. F-O-R-T. One last question for you, Lavinia. And as we do for all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Publicly funded, publicly funded better than privately financed. That does sound like a really good idea. But doesn't publicly financed mean state-run, and state-run means poor quality, boring design, means the Soviet Union, isn't, that's why, I'm, this is why this is the question from hell, Lavinia, isn't public financing the start of the slippery slope towards Soviet communism? <laughs> to give an example to that, I think it's great to look at uh, the public finance that the saving banks in Germany have been providing. These um, local saving banks on the municipal level, you see that a, a, a local city council, they are uh, the custodians of the bank, right? So they are in charge of managing it on behalf of its citizens. And I just point this example out because it shows that um, a kind of public type of ownership um, doesn't have to say at all that it is centralized, that it is um, top-down, but that actually you could um, manage them um, in the interest of the citizens. You could have citizens on the board of a company. You could have, uh, and you should have, um, a mission for such a public finance institution, such a local saving banks, so that um, they have a, a legal mandate that holds them to that mission, right? And as I briefly as I re- referred to the Banco Popular in Costa Rica, they are living up to that mission because they they put at the core to serve the social and sustainable welfare of the Costa Rican people. Um, and they are um, effectively financing those who otherwise would face financial exclusion. So just to say, you have so many models out there to um, run public democratic uh, uh, financial institutions from the local saving banks in, in Germany to um, a worker-owned uh, bank in Costa Rica, which is nationwide. So um, as long as these public institutions are deeply democratic and participatory, um, we don't have to be afraid. And of course, it's a constant, um, we, we have to constantly renew that commitment of these institutions to society, society because um, these, yeah, it's, it's very precarious. And, and uh, it means that, that 
citizens have to engage and, and be on top of these uh, um, public institutions and how our economies are run, right? But it's possible, and we've seen it happening, and we've seen it be successful all over the world. Lavinia, I really appreciate you being on our show this week. You can find out, again, more about the Transnational Institute by going to TNI.org and not only finding her article, but the whole collection of articles that Transnational Institute has right now when it comes to public finance. And you can follow Lavinia on Twitter at L. Steinfort. Our guest, again, has been Lavinia Steinfort. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thanks, Chuck. It was great. Take care. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. Seriously, prove us wrong. Send me an email, Chuck, at thisishell.com and tell me why this is not God's favorite radio show. Poverty is way worse than Bill Gates and that tool Steven Pinker are saying it is. No, everything isn't getting better always under capitalism. In fact, for some people, capitalism not only sucks, but it's starving them to death. We'll hear all about an online argument a past guest is having with that annoying annoying Steven Pinker. In a few minutes when we have the return of anthropologist Jason Hinkle, or Hickle, sorry, Hickle, who will discuss his uh, Guardian article that started this whole kerfuffle. Bill Gates says poverty is in decreasing. He couldn't be more wrong. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In 1555, 464 years ago, John Hooper, the former bishop of Gloucester, England, was in big trouble for his embrace of Puritan beliefs, his advocacy of Protestant reforms, and his staunch opposition to Roman Catholic doctrine. Despite his popularity with the common people, especially the poor, his beliefs had put him at odds with England's Catholic monarch, Queen Mary, who had ordered him stripped of his clerical position and burned at the stake, as was the Christianity of Catholics and the Church back in 55. 1555, apparently. Somehow those freaks twisted teachings that are supposedly about peace and love into Christ preaching, believe in me or die. Now as John Hooper sat in his cell awaiting the inevitable, he was brought a message. The queen would grant him a pardon if he would renounce his opposition to the Church of Rome. But Hooper refused the do-over. So the executioners promptly hustled him outdoors and tied him up. But the weather was rainy and cold, as it is in England, almost as if God didn't want him killed or anybody killed by being burdened at the stake. That is, if you believe in that kind of thing. The executioners were hard-pressed to keep the fire going long enough to do its job of killing Hooper. As they labored to light and relight the stubborn, damp kindling, Hooper repeatedly yelled at them to get the fire going so that he could die faster. That's how miserable the weather is in England. You'd rather burn to death than experience the rain in Britain. Yes, they did eventually kill Hooper by burning him at the stake, relieving him of the agony of standing out in the rain in England in 1555, where people were burned at the stake for not believing in Christ in the appropriate way. And now we can all completely understand why John Hooper was yelling at his executioners to get on with it already. In Rotten History, 1951, 68 years ago, at least 719 unarmed civilians, including 385 children, were massacred by a South Korean army battalion under the command of Che Tuk-sin, General Che Tuk-sin, patrolling the war-torn Gyoshang, or Joshang, district of South Korea, in search of communists and their sympathizers. So 400 years later... 
People were being, after John Hooper was burned at the stake, people were being executed for not believing in, when they're being executed for not believing in Christ proper, properly. 400 years later, people are being massacred for not believing in capitalism properly. Okay, makes sense. We do live in one market under God, according to Thomas Frank. Just two days earlier, the same army unit had murdered another 705 citizens in a nearby district. The South Korean Army Command tried to cover up both incidents, and a member of the country's National Assembly who called for investigations was quickly arrested. Two army officers were eventually found guilty, but were granted clemency by South Korea's U.S.-backed president, Syngman Rhee. Syngman Rhee. So, of course, the U.S. supported the murderous government in their war on communism. After the Korean War, General Che Tok Sin, who had led the massacres, served as South Korea's foreign minister and as an ambassador to West Germany. Because when you want to have someone build global relationships, you're going to want a war criminal. But Che Tok Sin grew increasingly critical of rampant corruption in the South Korean government. And as a war criminal, you can see why that would really, really offend him. Corruption. After a period of exile in the United States, Che Tuk Sin and his wife defected to North Korea in 1986. Wait, what? The guy hunts down and massacres thousands of people who he thinks are communists, whether they are or not, and he gets away with it. He's even rewarded with high positions within his own government, where he is so sickened by corruption, he, of course, defects to North Korea where the communists are? I've come to a conclusion. Che Tuk Sin may be one of the scariest humans who has ever lived that I did not know about until reading this entry in Rotten History. And that's Rotten History, and this is Hell. This week's question from Hell is, what are you in trouble for online? What are you in trouble for online? All replies right on air during the next hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets a This Is Hell stainless steel coffee mug, which you can see online at thisishell.com when you click on support. Again, the question from Hell is, what are you in trouble for online? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the next hour to see if you have won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, more and more people are falling into po- poverty, no matter what Bill Gates and Steven Pinker want you to believe. Brexit and the rise of the right in the UK is all because of Thatcherism and then Labour following Thatcherism by abandoning class grievances. Black women, even incarcerated black women, are on a mission for black humanity. During a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin handles the dinosaur problem. We'll also have listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what happened on this week's and last week's Patreon podcast of This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for supporting the show and sharing the show online. And we'll tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. Live from the rotting corpse that is broadcast radio, this is hell. Global poverty is worse than you think it is, and way worse than what Bill Gates is saying it is at the World Economic Forum. Here to help us understand the true state of poverty and how cruel people like Bill Gates and Steven Pinker can be in their assessment of what being poor means, anthropologist Jason Hickel returns to This Is Hell to discuss his Guardian article and the follow-up from that article. Bill Gates says poverty is decreasing. He couldn't be more wrong. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Jason. 
Hey, thanks, Chuck. Good to be here. Since the article was published, uh, Jason's work has been criticized by Steven Pinker, who argues everything is always getting better, so why change a thing? Jason is author of The Divide, A Brief Guide to Global Inequality and Its Solutions, which we not only discussed with Jason on our show last year, but was one of the books we selected as the best to be featured on This Is Hell in 2018. So you definitely have to check out Jason's book, the Divide. You can find out more about Jason at Jason Hickel, H-I-C-K-E-L dot org. You wrote in the Guardian article that started this whole thing. As world leaders and business elites arrived in Davos for the World Economic Forum, Bill Gates tweeted an infographic to his 46 million followers showing that the world has been getting better and better. Of the six graphs, the first has attracted the most attention by far. It shows that the proportion of people living in poverty has declined from 94% in 1820 to only 10% today. The claim is simple and compelling. And it's not just Gates who's grabbed onto it. These figures have been trotted out in the past year by everyone from Steven Pinker to Nick Kristoff and much of the rest of the Davos set to argue that the global uh, extension of free market capitalism has been great for everyone. How factually inaccurate is it to say poverty has declined from 94% in 1820 to only 10% today if it has not? Well, um, so it's... (laughs) It's a troubling graph for a number of reasons, actually. Um, and when you dig into it, then a, a lot of the stories the graph tells begins to completely fall apart. And this is something I've researched for a couple of years now. Um, and I've just kind of, I haven't really made a big deal of it publicly until recently because I got, I guess, kind of tired of seeing it retweeted by people like Bill Gates without any context, no any explanation of what was going on. But, um, you know, uh, there's two major problems. The first is that the long-term data, okay, so the graph goes from 1820 until today. The long-term data is basically non-existent for almost for, for the vast majority of the, of the global South, right? So, uh, for prior to the year 1900, there's just no data at all for Africa. Um, there's data for only three countries for Asia and Latin America, um, and so there's just no way that you know you can draw strong conclusions about long-term poverty from data that just doesn't exist at all. I mean, there's robust data for you know rich countries in the global North but virtually none for the South. And so it just doesn't make sense to say this is an accurate graph of global poverty. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing is that, is that that long-term period, the, for the, the period 1820 to 1970, actually relies on a data set that does not measure poverty at all. So even if the data was there, it's not the right data. Um, it's, da- it's data that's based on GDP per capita, right? Um, and so it basically says that as GDP per capita goes up a little bit during that period, then we assume that poverty is falling. Now, that's not true because it doesn't tell us what household consumption is, 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 um, is doing during that time. And what we know is that during that time was the period of colonization in the global south by Europe, uh, which is a time of mass displacement and enclosure of common resources. So people were being forced off the lands. Um, away from you know their farms, from their livestock, from forests that they use for fodder and hunting and so on, and into the capitalist labor market. So even while GDP was going up during the colonial period, albeit minimally in the colonies, um, people's lives were actually worse off because they didn't have access to the resources they normally depended on for, for, for living well, right? And so the stats make it seem as though people's lives are improving when in fact the opposite was happening. And so I, you know, I think this is particularly offensive about Gates' argument here, which is that, you know, industrialization during that period was somehow just, you know, was this glamorous, glorious thing for everybody. It's just not true. I mean, whatever benefits industrialization delivered during the colonial period, eventually, you know, uh, 
there was a time when they were far outstripped by the misery that it generated as people were sort of systematically pushed off the land. So that's one major problem with that graph is that it sort of takes the violence of colonization and repackages it as a happy narrative of progress. And I think that's actually unacceptable. Not only, um, un- not only unacceptable, but incredibly offensive. And you just—I I want you to get back to the chart oh, yeah. just for a second. But I, uh, the other thing I wanted to point out really quickly is that this chart, because people were asking me where did this chart come from, it's from Max Roser of Our World in Data. Is there something that we should know about Max Roser or Our World in Data that would suggest that this might be an intentional misrepresentation of the global economy in order to promote a certain agenda? Or is he just uh, somebody who is an objective scientist who, or objective data analyst who is giving what he has as far as data? So I think the story with Max Roser is probably a bit more complicated. Um, I mean... Uh, there's no question that his data has been picked up, you know, uh, by people who who want to use it to say that the status quo is great, you know, and, and Pinker and Gates are among those. I mean, they absolutely love Max Roser and the, and the charts that he produces. Um, I've been a longtime critic of the charts because a lot of them actually are quite misleading. Uh, now, I mean, data can be made to say lots of different things. And Max, as far as I, you know, um, would judge, tends to gravitate towards um, possible interpretations of data that are more favorable to the status quo. Whether that's intentional or not, I don't know. Um, you know, maybe, uh, I mean, look, look, if I was making graphs and Bill Gates was retweeting them, I would think I was doing a great thing. Let's put it that way. So, <laughs> you know, so maybe there's a kind of, kind of self-reinforcing thing when like famous people pay attention to you and they like what you do. Maybe that's quite affirming. Uh, so I, I can't really judge Max's motives. I mean, I think he's, he's a nice guy. Uh, so, um, let's leave it at that, I guess. Um, <laughs> but there's no question that that the uh, that the that the graphs have substantially reinforced a narrative that not only capitalism but neoliberal capitalism, you know, in its most voracious free market varieties, um, has been has been great for the world's poor, and and it's, and that's just not true. Right, and you uh, talk about this assumption that seems to be within their um, within the graph and within the thinking of Gates and Pinker, and that is whenever and wherever capitalism arrived, horrible poverty ended, and the quality of life got better. That uh, colonization, the colonialism, wasn't necessarily that bad of a thing for the global economy, for the globe, or its people. Do you believe that is what Gates believed, that colonization was progress? And if that is the case, what might that say about Gates's development plans when it comes to things like ending world hunger or developing a nation's economy? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know what Gates's position on colonization is. Uh, Right. But, you know, he has a position on industrialization, and that is that it is, it is you know, uh, of course, a good thing. Um, and look, that's a fine position to hold. There's no question that industrialization has given us a lot in terms of material, you know, goods, right? I mean, that's the whole point of it, I suppose. Um, it's also created a lot of inequality. But I think, that, you know, the biggest thing that gets ignored in that narrative is the violence that underpinned it, right? I mean, everything from the enclosures in England, you know, to colonization in the global south. I mean, what's crucial to recognize here is that is that um, is that industrialization was 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 forced on people, <laughs> um, and in most cases they didn't want to be part of the labor system of, of industrial capitalism. Right? They were, um, you know, content having their community autonomy, uh, control over the land and their resources, and um, and you know across the continent of Africa, for example, um, when 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 colonizers needed people to work on their mines and plantations, they were unable to get them even by paying them wages. You know, people would not consent to work in a European mine and risk their life 
for wages when they had everything they needed, you know, in their in their existing economies. Uh, and so and so they had to be forced to do so. Um, I mean, sometimes outright slavery, but uh, but more commonly by dispossessing them from the land. So they had no other way of survival but to work, you know, in the mines and on the plantations for wages. Right. Or impose taxes on them. So that was the only option they had to uh, to um, to pay them. So, you know, which is the, which is the case for people today. I mean, there's no other way we have to survive except for to sell ourselves for, for wages, right? We take it for granted today as normal, but it hasn't always been that way, of course. And so I think that, you know, that crucial bit of the story gets erased by these rosy, these rosy narratives about the 19th century. Um, I think that's quite dangerous. I, um, I know it's always a mistake to ask people what they think other people believe. That's kind of a mistake. So I, I want to ask this in a different, this question in a different way. When you look at the actions of the Gates Foundation, when it has to do with dealing with poverty, do you see a priority of fighting pro- poverty or a priority of saving oh, capitalism? Right. Yeah, let's yeah let's let's think about it this way, right? So, um, I think there's absolutely no question that the way that Gates approaches the issue of poverty is to do everything he can to avoid. Uh, making any substantive changes to the rules of the global economy um, in order to preserve the status quo that has privileged him immensely um, while trying to reduce some of the suffering around the edges, right? So, you know, we know for a fact that, you know, poverty is is widespread right now. We know that it can be solved really quickly without any aid or philanthropy whatsoever simply by making the rules of the global economy fair. And that's what we discussed last time when I talked about my book. Um, and, and, and what Gates does is he does everything possible to sort of divert attention from those structural, from those necessary structural changes to say, no, the problem is basically gone. You know, take a look at this graph, for example, it's almost, you know, poverty is almost eradicated. Um, and all we need to do is like deliver a little bit more aid here and there, which I can do as a billionaire. Right. And so, which is, you know, um, which is a problem. And so the thing is that when I point out that this graph, and we can talk about the, the present period, you know, in a moment here, but when, when I point out that this graph is misleading, you know, the truth is that the system is not working for the majority of humanity um, and, and needs substantive structural change. And that's precisely the conclusion that Gates is desperate for people to, um, to, uh, to not come to, <laughs> right? Uh, and so I think that's why, you know, a, a graph like this becomes so powerful as a tool for him. Um, to sort of divert our attention from the emergency that people are facing. So Steven Pinker was asked to respond. Why is what Steven Pinker says uh, relevant? Why is it even important to this uh, case? Why why is he such an important person for those people who do not know about this uh, author, this thinker, this writer? Yeah, so Steven Pinker has become famous uh, for um, a couple of books now that basically paint a rosy picture of how humanity has been getting progressively better and better um, uh, on this kind of amazing trajectory towards perfection. He, you know, he attributes this, this progress to, to Western, uh, you know, to Western enlightenment um, being spread around the world, basically. Right. So um, it's, uh, it's quite a American centric in some ways, definitely Eurocentric perspective on, on what the world is like. Um, but, you know, the, uh, a core piece of his arguments in this last book called Enlightenment Now that came out, was it last year, I think, um, was that, you know, look, the system's working really well because if we look at, at the poverty rate, you know, we can see that there's been this dramatic fall since 1981 until today. So only, whatever, 10% of the world's population are now in poverty. Um, and so that's kind of, the, you know, one of those flagship narratives is um, you can't complain about the global economy, even if it is generating immense inequality, at least poverty is almost gone. And so... 
um, you know, uh, if you care about the poor, we have to keep doing what we're doing, you know, like carry on with neoliberal capitalism. Now, what's interesting about about his, his argument there is that, okay, so he's using um, uh, a very, an extremely low poverty line of $1.90 per day, right? And, uh, and what's interesting about this is that there's a strong scholarly consensus now that that's simply too low to be meaningful for, for basic human survival, right? So um, $1.90 a day, and, and, and this is pegged to what $1.90 could buy in the U.S., right, in 2011. So try, so try surviving on $1.90 in the U.S. It's, it's almost obscene to even try to imagine. It's the equivalent of, somebody once calculated this, it's the equivalent of 35 people in Britain trying to survive on a single minimum wage without any scavenging or handouts or gifts whatsoever, right? Because those are included in the income figure for poverty, if you can imagine. So, um, uh, so if, we, you know, if we raise the poverty line to a more meaningful level, and scholars agree that about $7.40 a day is a basic minimum for achieving uh, normal human life expectancy, basic nutrition, a decent shot of surviving your fifth birthday. So if we use that more meaningful line, what we see is the narrative completely changes. Uh, we see that the number of people who live in poverty has increased dramatically since 1981, when measurements began, by more than a billion people, and stands today at about 4.2 billion people, which is almost 60% of the human population, right? Uh, and so that so suddenly the sort of rosy progress narrative completely melts away. Um, and in my book, 4.2 billion people living in poverty, uh, despite the enormous riches that uh, our world has, is not progress. It's an absolute disgrace. Um, and so I think that needs to be pointed out. And Pinker was not at all happy when I did so. Right. And uh, the numbers, though, of people living in poverty are up. But the proportion is down. The percentage of people who are living in poverty is down, despite the fact that, as you point out, the numbers are up. What level of success does that say that our current economic system has had? Is the current version of capitalism that we're living within today, within the global economic system, is that at least lowering the proportion of poor? And isn't that success? Oh, yeah. I mean, if people want to um, to think about it in terms of proportions, then at the, at the realistic poverty line that scholars support, um, you know, then since 1981, it's decreased from about 70% of people who live in poverty to about, you know, 60% today. So if people want to call that success, I mean, that's, that's over 40 years, right? <laughs> if you want to call that success of the, of the economic system, then they're welcome to do so. But I think that it's it's, it's, it's exactly the opposite. It's a sign of absolute failure, you know, especially because we know that um, if we measure the extent of poverty compared to our capacity to end it, uh, then we're actually doing worse than we were in the 1980s, uh, worse than ever before in history, because, you know, our world is much richer than it ever has been. And yet an extremely small share of it goes to the poorest uh, people. So, and actually we have figures on this, of all the new income generated by global growth, only about 5% of it goes to the poorest 60% of humanity, the people that live under the poverty line that I've mentioned. Um, that's an extremely slow rate of trickle-down. And so um, when we talk about you know, success, <laughs> you know, basically this means uh, people earning a few more cents per day uh, than they were before, and, and we call that success. I mean, I think that's absolutely ludicrous. And plus, you know, I mean, there's just no grounds in which one can say that 60% of the world's population living in poverty is acceptable or progress or success. It's just simply not when we know that we can end it right now. And so I think that it doesn't really matter if you use proportions or absolute numbers. 
according to both measures, you know, the reality is obscene uh, and unacceptable. Um, and, you know, there's, there's another piece of this here as well that I think we need to address. And that's that people like Gates and Pinker are very specific in saying that um, what, what gains have been accomplished have been accomplished by, uh, by, you know, a specific brand of neoliberal free market capitalism. But what's interesting is that there's no data to back up that claim. In fact, exactly the opposite is true. The places where those gains have happened are in China and East Asia. Okay. Now, what's interesting is that um, is that both of the is that those regions uh, did not follow the Washington Consensus um, pathway of radical market de- um, deregulation in the 80s and 90s, which was forced on the rest of the global South by the IMF and the World Bank during the structural adjustment period, right? So if we take China and East Asia out of the equation and look at what happened to the rest of the world in terms of poverty, what we see is that uh, not only have absolute numbers increased dramatically, but the proportion of people has not fallen at all. Take China out, and the proportion is exactly the same today as it was in 1981. No progress. So the one place where progress has happened is not a place that I think that Gates and Pinker can legitimately claim for uh, Washington, for Washington-style, you know, free market capitalism. I mean, it's true, of course, that East Asia and China did liberalize their economies, but they did so gradually on their own terms and with careful state-led investments uh, along the way. So it was a carefully regulated um, process, uh, unlike what happened to the rest of the global South, which was forced into sort of radical market liberalization. Pinker writes, the drastic decline in extreme poverty is corroborated by measures of well-being other than income that are correlated with prosperity, such as longevity, child mortality, maternal mortality, literacy, basic education, undernourishment, and consumption of goods like clothing, food, cell phones, even beer, all have improved. Do measures of well-being other than income at least prove that the effects of poverty, if not poverty itself, are becoming less and less harsh? Oh, yeah. So, you know, there's no question that um, that life expectancy, you know, has improved. And that's an important measure, I think. Uh, there's a caveat to that. Well, there's two caveats to that. The first caveat is that um, that's, you know, that's always a, um, an average figure. And when you divide, when you start looking at, at how that gets divided up by class and things change quite a lot, right? So if you look at the U.S., like life expectancy for rich white people is significantly higher than it is for working class African-Americans, right? There's a huge discrepancy. And the same is true virtually across, across the board. And so when you start, you know, disaggregating that, you know, that figure by class, we start seeing different kinds of trends and it looks a little bit less rosy. Um, but the other thing to realize here is that what really drives improvements in life expectancy and education, for example, um, is not, you know, uh, um, high levels of GDP growth, <laughs> um, but rather, you know, uh, investments in public um, services like public health care and education. So take Cuba, for example, um, which is, I assume, not a country that, that Pinker likes very much. Uh, Cuba has a lower infant mortality rate than the U.S. and a higher life expectancy rate than the U.S., despite you know a fraction of its GDP per capita. And they've achieved that. I mean, whatever else you might think of the regime there, we don't have to agree with it. They've achieved that through robust investments in universal public health care. Um, and that's what's delivered such uh, incredible health uh, improvements in Cuba. Um, so, you know, uh, I think it's disingenuous to, to try to claim that improvements in life expectancy, you know, are due to neoliberal capitalism, when in fact, the opposite is true. In fact, um, again, during the structural adjustment period in the global south, during the 80s and 90s, the World Bank and the IMF stripped funding 
from they cut spending right on healthcare and education. They force states to cut spending on social services, and improvements in life expectancy and education obviously uh, began to slow down dramatically. Um, so again, the data is sort of opposite to what Pinker says. Um, so, uh, but but I mean, again, this is not to say that that improvements have not been made. The question is, are those improvements adequate? And that's the point. That's exactly the point. They haven't been. Uh, well, just a couple more questions for you, Jason. Um, Pinker ends by giving supposed proof of some left-wing conspiracy and it, because he believes that the left has been humiliated by globalization success. And so he cites a quote from David Graeber. Uh, the quote is from a 2017 tweet and states, Graeber writing, does anyone know any handy rebuttals to the neoliberal conservative numbers on social progress over the last 30 years? Again and again, I see these guys trundling out numbers that absolute poverty, illiteracy, child malnutrition, child labor have sharply declined. It strikes me as highly unlikely these numbers are right. It's clear this is all put together by right-wing think tanks. Yet, where's the other side's <laughs> numbers? I've found no clear rebuttals. To you, is David Graeber asking for information rebutting claims of globalization success proof that there's a left-wing conspiracy to undermine and mischaracterize globalization? Oh, uh, yeah, I, I don't think so. I mean, David, if anybody knows David, and I know him well, he um, he's a funny guy, right? Like, he's always tongue-in-cheek. Uh, he's a very serious scholar. Um, on Twitter, he is... Uh, he's, um, he's funny and interesting, uh, and quite engaging. And so this is, you know, this is an example of him on Twitter uh, making a tongue-in-cheek remark. I think um, he obviously cares a lot about the data. He and I have talked about it a lot. Um, uh, so I don't think that he's, he's he's like looking for ways to undermine globalization when globalization is in fact doing great for everybody. He knows for a fact that it's not working, and so he's just wondering like, how do I square? Okay, so, you know, for example, he he does his, his field work in Madagascar. Um, which is a very poor country, and he's trying to—he's trying to ask, how do I square this dominant discourse of everything is awesome, you know, for the world poor, with my actual experience living—I mean, living for years among uh, among people in Madagascar, knowing for a fact that everything is not awesome, right? Uh, and so he—he he was just looking for, like, you know, has anyone stepped up to challenge some of these figures? Uh, and it turns out that the you know the figures you know have been challenged repeatedly by scholars. There's a long tradition of this dating back to at least the past two decades, um, and only now is that counter narrative, re- you know, really beginning to uh, to gain some traction. Uh, so, and this and this is not this is not for me. I mean, uh, of course, I do research on this, but I'm not the only one. I'm also channeling what other scholars have been saying for many years. Um, so I think that's what David is after. Yeah, and uh, we've had David on a few times on the show, and he's constantly laughing. So you know he's got a really good sense of humor about this kind of thing. Uh, one last question for you, Jason. We've been speaking with anthropologist Jason Hickel, who returns to This Is Hell, who returned to This Is Hell, to discuss his Guardian article and the fallout from that article. Bill Gates says poverty is decreasing. He couldn't be more wrong. One last question for you, Jason. And as always, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. And I think the audience that would hate your response to this question are Bill Gates and Steven Pinker. How dangerous are Bill Gates and Steven Pinker to the world's poor? Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I think that, that Steven Pinker is particularly dangerous, let's put it that way, <laughs> um, in the sense of he's he, uh, just because of the narrative that he's been promoting, which I think is 
um, has really misled a lot of people as to how um, how extreme uh, poverty and suffering is around the world still today, right? Um, and so I think that's a problem because we, you know, we need all hands on deck. We need to focus on 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 what's actually going on in terms of the distribution of income in our in the global economy. And right now, it is extremely unfair um, to say that we're on track for progress is just absolutely wrong. We know for a fact from recent economic research showing that at our present rate of trickle down of income to the poorest 60% of humanity, it will take 200 years to eradicate poverty at $7 a day. Uh, so that's not a trajectory of progress. That's a trajectory of misery. Um, and so I think that, you know, Pinker trying to uh, to create a rosy picture out of that is just is intellectually dishonest and counterproductive, particularly for poor people. Um, as You know, as far as Gates goes, look, there's no question that, that he does um, a lot of good uh, in terms of his investment in uh, whatever it might be, bed nets or uh, or malaria medicines and so on, that's really important. But we also have to recognize that um, that uh, his extreme wealth has come in the first place from mechanisms that have hurt poor people. Okay, so intellectual uh, intellectual property rights um, is what lies behind Bill Gates' accumulation, and it's precisely laws around intellectual property that have debarred uh, poor people from accessing crucial life-saving drugs, including HIV drugs like antiretroviral, antiretrovirals, um, which has led to immense suffering for people around the world. And so uh, we can't pretend that Gates is somehow innocent uh, of um, helping the cause some of the problems that he purports to be solving with his philanthropy. I think it's important to recognize that um, that extreme accumulation like he has always comes with a downside, like somebody gets exploited down the line. Uh, and that's quite clear in his case. Jason, I really appreciate you being back on the show. Anthropolo- anthropologist Jason Hickel returned to This Is Hell to talk about his Guardian article, Bill Gates Says Poverty Is Decreasing. He Couldn't Be More Wrong. And you have to check out Jason's book, The Divide, A Brief Guide to Global Inequality and Its Solutions. You can find out all about it at jasonhickel.org. And you can follow Jason on Twitter at Jason Hickel. We really look forward to having you on again in the very near future, Jason. Take care. And uh, again, look at that. Huge congratulations for being one of the top books on our show in 2018. So you got the check and the award and the roses, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Huge check. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Don't spend it all in one place, sir. I'll I'll try not to. All right. (laughs) Thank you, Jason. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. And speaking of a deep, bottomless void of nothingness. Do you remember the 1980s? Yeah, they sucked. We had the rise of Reaganism here in the States and the rise of Thatcherism in the UK, and we're still reeling from both, including how the left abandoned the working class, leaving them vulnerable to be exploited by hate and the right substitution of racial grievances. For those of class, we'll find out how we got to Brexit when we have the return in a few minutes of Richard Seymour, who this week posted the article Brexit and the White Working Class on his Patreon page, patreon.com slash Richard Seymour WTF. You can rate This Is Hell on Facebook, and after 195 respondents so far, we have the highest rating possible, five out of five stars. If you rate This Is Hell and leave a comment about us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio, we'll read your rating and comment on the air. I'm still laughing at Rachel grievances. I've got some real issues with Rachel. (laughs) 
This week, uh, Steve Perry of Aerosmith, I can only assume. Where's he dead? I think he's dead. Or at least to me. Anyway, Steve Perry gave us five out of five stars and said, Thank you for a great show. Very succinct. Thank you, Steve Perry of Aerosmith, or not. You, too, can go to Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio and give us five stars so I don't have to. And if you do and leave a comment, I'll read yours on air as I just did of Steve's. And this week's question from hell is, are you in, what are you in trouble for online? What are you in trouble for online? All replies right on air following our next guest. This week's winner gets a This Is Hell stainless steel coffee mug, which you can see online at thisishell.com when you click on support. Again, the question from hell is, what are you in trouble for online? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. And listen following our next guest to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, Brexit and the rise of the right in the UK is all because of Thatcherism and eventually laboring, labor following suit by abandoning class grievances. Black women, even incarcerated black women, are in, on a mission for black humanity. During a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin handles the dinosaur problem. We'll also tell you what happened on this week's and last week's Patreon podcast. We'll tell you what Alex has been up to on social media. Of course, the question from hell. And we have some listeners to thank for supporting This Is Hell and listeners to thank for sharing the show online. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell, Alex Jerry, truly revolting radio, this is hell. How the hell did we get to Brexit? For that matter, what the hell happened to foster a rise of the far right wing nationalist populace we're seeing pop up all over the world? Here to guide us through all the horrible crap that had to happen to get us to Brexit live from London, writer and broadcaster Richard Seymour returns to This Is Hell to discuss his article that he posted this week at his Patreon page, patreon.com slash Richard Seymour WTF, titled Brexit and the White Working Class. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Richard. Hi, thanks for having me. Richard is a contributing editor of Salvage. Uh, His most recent book is 2016's Corbin, The Strange Rebirth of Radical Politics. And he currently presents a program, Media Review, for Telesur. You can find out more about Richard by following him on Twitter at Leninology, or you can go to his website, leninology.co. Dot UK. You write, why if the government is so weak, is the Tory vote still solid? Why do you see the government of Theresa May as weak? The Conservatives still hold a plurality in uh, Parliament. So why is her or her party seen as weak? Well, because they are unable to deliver uh, any form of Brexit that would uh, get a majority in the House of Commons. And They've decided that Brexit is the number one policy on which their uh, record will be judged. Uh, That's been the case since Theresa May took the leadership in 2016. Uh, She built her popularity, her personal popularity, on that of a party on that. Um, Party's uh, share of the vote in polls went up from about the low 30s to 40%, and then increasingly even went a bit higher um, up until the... um, snap election, catastrophic misjudgment, snap election called in June 2017. So they were doing quite well up until then. Um, And since then, they've been in crisis. They've been in crisis because they no longer have even a parliamentary majority. So 
they previously had uh, majority of MPs and they could get votes through. Um, now they depend upon the backing of the uh, headbangers, the Democratic Unionist Party, which is from the six counties of Northern Ireland, where I'm from. And they are, uh, as uh, has been uh, wittily put by, I think, Owen Jones, the political wing of the 17th century. They are radical Protestant uh, group. Uh, they, are, they have a history of uh, involvement in right-wing paramilitarism, and they have absolutely zero truck with modernity, let alone with um, the European Union, which they tend to regard as anti-Christian, um, uh, indeed as the papal antichrist. So this is um, the kind of um, politics uh, that uh, is structuring um, the current moment. But the, the, there should be no mistake that the government is, in its own terms, rather weak. Um, it's just that it's not weak for electoral reasons. You write, Labour's electoral recovery crushed the Tory lead. This is in the 2017 vote, but not the Tory vote. Labour did well in spite of a popular Conservative Party. Even today, amid a crisis for the government with the backbenches split and colleagues sharpening their knives against May and no Brexit deal uh, availing, the Tories pull close to 40%. Then you ask, why is keeping or what is keeping conservative voters loyal? And you also have the answer, the same thing that is tearing the party apart from constituency branch to cabinet, Brexit. How is Brexit both tearing the conservative party apart and keeping members loyal? Well, uh, keeping voters loyal, I should say. But um, in terms of tearing the party apart, um, there's something to be said for a good old bit of Marxist reductionism, um, class reductionism, in as much as this seems to me to be a straightforward class issue. If you're uh, a member of the capitalist class, barring a few outliers like Rupert Murdoch and various others, the majority of the capitalist class in the United Kingdom is very strongly oriented towards Europe. Um, they have strong trade connections with Europe. They depend upon exporting to Europe. Their, um, their basic model of building profit and uh, um, developing business uh, is based upon uh, the UK being a member of the European Union. Uh, on top of that, of course, a lot of foreign direct investment, uh, which has been one of the major pillars of uh, British economic growth, especially since the 1980s and the collapse of manufacturing in this country, um, depends upon access to European markets. So um, the traditional big business establishment of the Conservative Party uh, is very much against Brexit. They're prepared to go along with some version of Brexit because obviously uh, they don't have the means to stop it, um, but they want the softest Brexit possible, uh, commensurate with um, the vote. The um, traditional sort of what you might call the um, uh, middle-class right um, that uh, usually makes up the rank and file of the Conservative Party. And you can think about this as the kind of people who attend constituency branches, retired professionals, um, loan traders, people who run pubs, um, people who uh, run taxi cabs and so on, who make their money um, either um, as in a, in, a, in a sort of professional way or uh, as loan operators on the market. So they're not big business, but nor are they, uh, you know, employed. They're not employees. Um, 
and they tend to have a, a certain perspective that goes along with that. One of the uh, things that uh, guides their point of view about the European Union is that they bitterly resent the rule and the uh, regulations that being a member of the European Union entails. These rules and regulations, um, from the point of view of the larger firms, are quite you know, mild and very manageable. Um, but for uh, smaller firms, you know, laws to do with holidays, um, to do with uh, employment regulations and human rights and all the rest of it can be a bit uh, tiresome. Also, things like workplace safety standards or product standards and so on can be quite difficult. Um, and they tend to take the view anyway that com- countries shouldn't all have the same regulatory um, and political framework, uh, but rather should be competing. And so there should be a bit of uh, robust competition. And that might mean that one country might try to outbid another country by uh, cutting taxes further and uh, cutting up its uh, regulatory framework uh, in such a way as to benefit business and attract more investment. That's the basic idea. So this is a, a class rift between the traditional middle-class right, who are very nationalistic, who are very um, uh, small business-minded, um, who, or if they are associated with big businesses, tend to make their money much further afield than the European Union. You know, uh, they may have investments in the United States or um, parts of Southeast Asia and so on. Um, but uh, the the point is that you can't give both of these constituencies uh, what they want. And the other aspect of this is, of course, that in the 2016 referendum, it wasn't the business uh, wing of the Conservative Party that won. It was the middle-class reactionaries. Um, it was those who either were still members of the Conservative Party or who had split away to form uh, the UK Independence Party, an anti-European party that did very well in the 2015 general election um, and whose existence is one of the reasons uh, that there was a referendum on membership of the European Union in the first place. Um, They, by winning the referendum, effectively um, won the argument for the future direction of the Conservative Party. And therefore, um, to a very large extent, the future direction of British capitalism. Um, Now, Theresa May is a leader who has promised that she will listen to these people, but she has to somehow listen to them without letting them win, because she can't deliver the kind of hard Brexit that they want. They want out. They don't care if there's a deal. They don't want to be part of a customs union. They don't want to be part of a single market. They don't want to be um, subordinated to European Court of Justice jurisdiction. Um, These views are incommensurable. What impact do you think the Conservative Party becoming the party of Brexit, and it seems to me like uh, of only about being Brexit, what, what has... Uh, what impact has that had on the Conservative Party? What's the effect on the Conservative Party when they're defined by Brexit? And is that sustainable to, as far as having even a plurality within Parliament to only be the party of Brexit? Well, uh, to be fair, Brexit condenses multitudes, you know. Um, it's a whole strategic orientation uh, for the future of capitalism. So um, if you look at what people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, who's a very right-wing Tory, what people like them, them want 
is um, a version of British capitalism that um, is, you know, uh, has a much smaller welfare state, has much lower taxes on corporate profits and uh, business investment, much lower taxes on higher incomes, uh, that has a much um, more pro-business regulatory structure. It's not a question of deregulation, as sometimes people put it. It's a question of uh, regulations being much more geared towards uh, favoring especially large corporations and especially um, some of the uh, more cowboy wings of uh, financial capital. So um, there's, a, there's a whole lot condensed within it. And for the time being, at least, um, the majority of conservative voters uh, are very animated by this issue. Um, and if the Tories were to stop being the party of Brexit, they would stop having uh, 40% of the vote or thereabouts. Um, in terms of the long-term effects, I think what it's done uh, is temporarily um, overcome a conservatism because they had been suffering uh, hemorrhaging members and votes since uh, the 1990s. So um, the big issue over which uh, they lost uh, members and votes in 1992, was what was called the ERM crisis. This was a crisis uh, that was brought about by Britain's alignment with the European uh, single currency as it, as it was coming into being. Um, the value of the pound was uh, hitched to the value of um, effectively the German mark. And this resulted in a financial crisis um, for the government. And it uh, produced a major split within conservatism over uh, future alignment with Europe. But um, it uh, accelerated the, you know, um, existing uh, problems with the Conservative Party's voting base. And uh, the result is that by between 1992 and 2016, the Conservative Party lost uh, the majority of its membership. It had had 1 million members in 1992. By 2016, it had about 150,000 members and declining and a very aging membership. It's not being replaced by younger members. So it's not um, or was not sustainable. Brexit has briefly interrupted that. It's uh, briefly infused the ranks with some um, uh, long departed members. And of course, it's added a whole bunch of voters. Um, to the base that previously was uh, between 30 and 35 percent or thereabouts. So they, you know, they they built a viable uh, electoral base for the time being. Um, but once Brexit is actually implemented, it's hard to see how that can be sustained. I want to ask you a couple of general questions about Brexit, and then we'll get back into your writing uh, because mm -hmm. of the way that the media narrative is here in the United States. If yeah. the voters of the UK could do it all over again, would UK voters support Brexit? And do you think they want to do it all over again? Um, it's very hard to say. Uh, because uh, I think it depends what you mean. If if you mean have the same campaign, then I'm pretty certain that uh, Leave would win again. Um, because the, um, the, the reasons for the defeat of the Remain campaign 
haven't been analyzed, haven't been assimilated, haven't been overcome. It was overwhelmingly a campaign run by clueless um, businessmen uh, by Downing Street um, and by people, you know, like uh, the, the leaders of the campaign were people who had long lost touch with voters, um, right-wing politicians from the Labour Party, centre-hugging politicians from the Conservative Party, um, and a lot of uh, clueless businessmen and uh, uh, celebrities, uh, like D-list celebrities. Um, and they ran a very poor campaign that didn't uh, have give people any concrete reasons to remain in the European Union. The only people who were excited and agitated over this issue were, of course, the right-wing and the racists. Um, and so if this campaign had been run in the 1970s, it would have been a little bit different because the left at that point was probably the main uh, opponent of what was then the European economic community. Um, and it would have uh, had quite a lot of trade union um, opposition to Europe and a lot of um, sort of socialist opposition because the European uh, economic community was seen then as basically a club for business. And uh, it was seen as profoundly anti-socialist, anti-government intervention, anti-planning, all the rest of it. Um, that's not the way it was run uh, in 2016. Uh, by that time, a number of things had changed uh, in British politics. The first thing that had changed was that by uh, the end of the 1980s, after years of defeat at the hands of Miss Thatcher, the trade unions had abandoned their anti-European position on the basis that Europe had some fairly exiguous laws and regulations that would protect labor, organized labor, um, from government attacks. And they thought, well, you know, we're not going to get much from Westminster, but we can hang on to these rules, um, and that will be some sort of defense. Um, and at the same time, the Labour Party, whose position had been to withdraw from the European economic community, um, uh, adopted a pro-European stance uh, as of 1989, um, very quickly. And uh, since then, it was the more pro-European party, more pro-European in general than the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party, um, uh, after the end of the Cold War, when there was no longer any need for uh, the unity of Europe against uh, communism and so, so on, um, uh, decided that it was safe to split over the question of Europe. And so that's around the early 90s, you start to see that. So by 2016, the major anti-European forces are those of the middle class right, um, while the left and the labor movement has just got used to not even talking about Europe you know, rather not even have to enter into the conversation. So you end up with a campaign where the left doesn't really have much of a, a voice at all anyway, um, where the, the funding is going either to, um, you know, uh, these large business-led campaigns that don't connect with people, or it's dark money being funneled into the Brexit right. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the left is basically nowhere. And I fear that if we were to have a, a referendum along those lines again, we'd get pretty much the same result. But, you know, the worst thing would be uh, if the result was uh, only slightly different. In other words, if we got 52-48 the other way. So if you got, say, 52 for remain, 48 for leave, uh, in a second referendum, say, 
The trouble with that is it would still be too close to uh, count as a kind of consensus, and it would um, be interpreted by Brexiters um, and Brexit voters as a betrayal. You know, we had this vote, it was once in a lifetime, you staged a referendum again because you didn't like the result, you got this very narrow victory, and now you're going to uh, impose it on us. And of course, you you would be setting up a betrayal myth. Um, but at this stage, I tend to think all the options are bad. Staying in, leaving, soft Brexit, hard Brexit, they all have different risks um, and, a, and a different set of possibilities, too. You write how the media portrays the passions of the white working class. And you write how this is tangled up with the same weave of misleading ideological assumptions that led to journalists talking up uh, the new far right wing party, the UKIP's working class credentials. They even talked about a UKIP effect that was possible. What misleading ideological assumptions by the media uh, led to this view of Brexit and UKIP being driven by white working class passions and giving those movements working class credentials. What are what are the wrong assumptions that journalists made? Well, you know, this all started in the New Labour era when um, the only way in which you were allowed to talk about class, if you remember, Tony Blair declared the class war over. Uh, so the only way you were allowed to acknowledge class at all was to talk about this so-called white working class, and only then in the context of cultural grievance, of um, losses in ethnic competition, you know, of of a sense that, you know, we have multiculturalism now, all these other cultures are are listened to, they get certain rights, we have nothing, nobody pays any attention to us, blah blah So you could talk about um, working class issues only if they were constructed through racism, uh, ethnic resentment, um, competition and so on, and nationalism. So from this point of view, the working class, um, through this filter of whiteness, as it were, um, is not militant. It's not engaged in class struggle. It's not striking. Uh, you know, it's not doing anything dangerous or subversive. It's conformist. It's traditionalist. It likes to wrap itself in the the, the flag, and uh, it's very um, narrow-minded, nationalistic, uh, socially sadistic, and, you know, you can patronize such people. And that was a political tendency that began back in the sort of early 2000s, and perhaps a bit earlier than that. And when um, groups like the BNP uh, started to gain support in northern cities, um, British National Party was a, a fascist party, um, which was... Uh, very good at uh, sort of uh, pretending otherwise for the media, but it was basically a fascist organization. And uh, they gained some votes in northern um, working-class cities and towns. And you know the old ecological fallacy, which is that, uh, you know, if if they gained votes in a a working-class area, that must mean their votes are working-class. Actually, by and large, they got uh, a mixture of votes. They got some working-class votes. They got quite a lot of middle-class votes, too. Um, but there was this idea that you, could, um, you couldn't uh, ever attribute fascism and racist views to educated middle-class people. It had to be the incoherent, inarticulate cry of grievance on the part of these um, uh, morally endangered white workers. And their moral endangerment was that they would slip into the so-called underclass, you know, uh, people who don't know how to raise their families, people whose children are feral, people whose teenagers get pregnant, people who don't uh, obey teachers in class and uh, show lack of discipline, you know, that kind of uh, moral endangerment. Um, 
So essentially, um, that was the sort of ideological preparation. And what you saw um, in the sort of uh, inter intervening period was that the Labour Party's vote in a lot of these areas stopped turning out. Millions of working class voters, far from gravitating to the far right, just stopped voting. Labour lost uh, between 1997 and 2010 five million largely working class votes. The majority of them were um, lost to non-voting, not to uh, left or right uh, parties. Insofar as they did vote, it tended to be parties that positioned themselves as being slightly to the left of where the Labour Party was at that time. But um, nonetheless, um, there's always, um, in any of these myths, a grain of um, truth. And the grain of truth is that even though the majority of the vote isn't uh, particularly working class uh, for these right-wing parties, or rather, um, you know, they haven't traditionally been particularly working class. They did begin to pick up a lot of working class votes in the recent years. Um, and even though the majority of working class voters still supported Labour or various left-wing or centre-left alternatives, um, there was a significant section of the working class that had moved to the right. And if you look at it in the 20th century in this country, um, conservatism always had a fairly big um, um, working class vote. It was about a third of the working class backed the conservatives. Um, and so, you know, it's not, it's not that this uh, idea is totally false. It's just presented in a completely mythological way that is about scapegoating um, white working class people, as it were, for racism um, and for nationalism and chauvinism. Um, and of course, you know, one of the effects of doing that is that it justifies political parties and the media in moving to the right, because they can say, we're just responding to the concerns that ordinary people have. Um, so it's been a very convenient myth um, for uh, people who want to anchor politics uh, to the right um, so, so that it doesn't gravitate towards more radical solutions. And you can see uh, from the response to Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party just how terrified the political and media establishment is in this country of any serious left-wing discourse. You write that Tony Blair in a major 1998 speech signaled the new consensus that the class war was over in Westminster, saying the class war, as he put it, was over. So how, to what degree did, and, it, and I'm not just saying in the UK even, is this the case with uh, all of the world and the rising far-right movements, to what degree did uh, liberals uh, turning their back on class concerns, class grievances, uh, turning their back on workers, to what degree did that uh, abandoning of unions, did that embrace of neoliberalism lead yeah. to... And uh, the rise of the far right, because there was nobody there to tell them to express, to let them express and understand the class grievances anymore. And they were suddenly exploited by a far right that all they wanted to do was exploit their racial grievances. To what degree is this all about nothing more than the left abandoning its base of workers? Well, I think we should be um, uh, we should make some distinctions here. I don't think it's strictly speaking the left um, that's done this abandoning. The left was crushed. And let's be clear about this: the organised left within the Labour Party, and insofar as there was a left in the Democratic Party too, uh, was crushed. Um, 
and uh, the left within the trade union movement was um, also um, defeated, you know, one after another. Uh, the left in PASOK uh, in Greece was defeated. So basically, um, I don't think it's a question of the left abandoning the working class so much as the part of the left that um, would have been interested in the working class was defeated alongside working class movements. So here's the thing. It's not just a question of class grievances. You know, do you listen to the, uh, the, the anger and the grievances of the working class? It's a question of organization. You know, um, so it's not just a question of whether these poor victims are listened to and represented by someone. It's a question of whether they can do anything uh, about their plight, whether they can be self-organized. And when they can't, instead, you, that's exactly when you get this victimhood culture. Um, and, it, you know, that victimhood can come out in various ways. It can go left or it can go right. But generally speaking, I have to say, I think it's the uh, biases towards uh, political reaction. So it's... Um, it's partly a matter of, uh, you know, when we talk about Tony Blair and New Labour saying the class war is over, very much trying to uh, distinguish themselves from uh, their working class roots um, and trying to say, look, we're, we're becoming something different. We're a new party. We're, we're not interested in being just a working class party anymore. Well, uh, to some extent, that reflects their reading of uh, long-term social trajectories and tendencies. They believed uh, that the working class uh, as a political agency was in decline. They believed uh, this was an argument that started to come out uh, within uh, left-wing circles and within the Labour Party um, uh, back in the 1970s and early 80s. Um, and the idea that as Eric Hobsbawm, the famous historian, once put it, the forward march of Labour has been halted, um, gained a lot of ground in the Labour Party uh, in the 1980s and 1990s. So this wasn't just Tony Blair, um, you know, declaring this by by fiat, as it were. It was the product of a, a, a real concrete historical experiences, which they interpreted in a particular way. They interpreted defeat. Uh, they interpreted electoral setbacks. They interpreted um, the deep crisis of laborism itself. Uh, and it had been in a long period of crisis before Tony Blair took the leadership um, as uh, indication that class uh, strategies were no longer viable. So uh, the point isn't uh, for me um, simply to point the finger at Tony Blair and at liberals, you know, the Clintonites and all the rest of it, and say, you let the working class down. It's rather that the defeat of the working class uh, movement let these people uh, come in and uh, impose this distinctively neoliberal direction on, on policy. And had the working class not suffered from these defeats, that wouldn't have happened. And that then raises some other questions. It raises an interesting question about why it was possible for these defeats to happen. What was going on? Um, and that's a deeper um, uh, structural question, as well as a question about the strategies and tactics used by the left and the labor movement at that time. So, in other words, I'm saying, you know, we should avoid a victimology. We should avoid a, a tale in which people have just been abandoned, because that, to me, uh, is exactly the kind of tale that the populist right are using. Um, it's not straightforwardly false. There is some kind of abandoning going on, but that's not all that's going on. 
Uh, that's a really interesting uh, distinction to make. And you're just mentioning the problems that were happening within uh, laborism, within the labor movement in general in the UK. Yeah. Uh, in the US, the problems within the labor movement uh, that led to uh, the Democratic Party not having as much interest or not being as linked to unions as, as they were in the past. One of the reasons and one that was focused on a great deal by the media and by the uh, by the right was that unions were corrupt. Is that the same issue that they were involved with organized crime? Is that the same kind of issue that British labor faced, or was it a different problem within labor? Oh, no. I mean, it was completely different. No. I mean, look, as regards the trade unions, uh, the Labour Party in the post-war period, when it was at its peak um, in terms of electoral support and in terms of its ability to deliver on policy, uh, rested upon a broad social coalition of the essentially the left wing of the working class and the left wing of the middle class. So you had um, you had the sort of people who were in trade unions would tended to be uh, would would vote Labour. Um, you had um, professionals who were more working in the humanities, the arts, um, in um, uh, administration. They tended to be uh, pro Labour. Uh, and that was a broad enough uh, social basis. But by the um, late 1970s, the middle class part of that coalition is beginning to resent the uh, power of organized labor and to fear their militancy and to fear what they can do. And so, you know, but by the early 1980s, um, the, the sort of middle class part of the labor coalition had split away to form the Social Democratic Party. Um, and their basic idea was, we're going to keep the post-war social compromise based on welfare and, con- uh, you know, some degree of controlled capitalism alive. And we're going to do that by asserting our independence from both the working class and business. You know, we won't be a party of business like the Tories. We won't be in the pockets of the trade unions like Labour. And they had a lot of influence on um, the subsequent uh, reaction against the trade unions. The biggest um, sort of reason for the reaction against trade unions was that in 1970s they'd been extraordinarily militant, and it had worked for a long period of time. Um, but by the late 1970s, uh, you know, they were striking and not getting very far. They had a Labour government. The Labour government wasn't uh, delivering. Um, uh, in fact, the trade union leadership at that time uh, was uh, supporting a government that was imposing uh, real terms pay cuts of about 20%. So you had this growing gap between, uh, on the one hand, the trade union leaderships who wanted to support a Labour government who saw it as their government. And that Labour government, in order to restore profitability to industry, was holding down wage rises. Uh, in effect, making sure that workers were taking massive pay cuts in order to restore profitability to large enterprises. Um, trade union leaders were part of that. They uh, they called it the social contract. By the late 1970s, that had broken down completely. There were wildcat strikes. There was uh, a lot of rancor. There was bitterness in society. Uh, there wasn't this sense of class-wide solidarity. Um, and that's when you saw Thatcherism starting to, you know, this uh, sort of aggressive ideology of competitive individualism uh, insinuate itself into the um, gaps created by the collapse of post-war laborism. So it's, um, 
It's a complex series of factors, but uh, the trade unions in this country have never been particularly associated with corruption, I must say. Um, it's more that um, the, you know, in terms of the right-wing fear of them, they're fi- uh, frightened of their uh, potential power to, you know, march the, the workers into the Houses of Parliament and start causing a scene, you know, that kind of thing. And it's massive. It's, it's massively exaggerated because no trade union movement in the world has been more conservative than the British trade union movement. You talk about labor being soft and being concerned, actually, being concerned about being soft uh, and how what impact that had on their policymaking over the last uh, 30 years. Uh, to what degree do you see that same issue here in the United States uh, with the Democratic Party? What happens to a political party when... You know, we were talking earlier, the only thing that uh, the conservatives have going for them, or the thing they're depending on the most is Brexit. What happens to the political party's strategy when their concerns are about being perceived as soft by the opposition? Okay, so to be specific, um, they're frightened of appearing to be soft on the issue of immigration, which means they're frightened that some uh, of the votes, by no means a majority, but just enough of the vote, perhaps, to deprive them of an electorally viable coalition, um, would um, see them as being too sentimental, soft, uh, 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 on the issue of uh, immigration. They, um, there is a section of the uh, vote, a fairly large section of the vote, who wants immigration to be reduced. They want uh, the borders to be toughened. They want free movement, um, which has come with um, being a member of the European Union, to come to an end. And they um, may resent a Labour Party that is seen as, you know, too bleeding heart and so on. So that's the softness that I'm talking about. Um, And I know that, you know, there's um, a a certain ideology, a discourse uh, in um, some centre-seeking democratic circles, um, which is basically saying, well, we lost the white working class because we were too soft on uh, issues that they care about. You know, we were too concerned with uh, political correctness and multiculturalism um, and not concerned enough with the stability and security um, and, uh, you know, concerns of white workers. Inevitably, concerns is um, a euphemism for racism or something like that, or sexism or one of those issues. So um, in terms of, um, but I, actually, you know, the big difference between Labour and the Democrats is that in the last uh, decade, um, the Democrats, Uh, we're faced with a completely different political terrain in terms of immigration policy because, of course, you have this massive wave of migration workers' struggle, um, beginning with a general strike uh, in 2006. And uh, the result of that is that the Democrats can't pursue the kinds of really right-wing nationalistic policy as regards migration that I think some of them would love to pursue. Um, it's not politically viable, particularly if you want to make sure you get the Hispanic voter to turn out. Um, uh, that's not really the case in the United Kingdom. Migrant workers tend to be talked about rather than listened to. There's no, uh, uh, there's very little organisation among them. 
Um, and insofar as there is organization, it's very small. It's taking place at a very small level. Um, and the left hasn't really done a lot to organize them or listen to them or give them any representation or voice. I think that's a shame. I think that's a big miscalculation. If you look at the history of the British left and its triumphs, generally speaking, you know, you think about the struggle against apartheid. British anti-apartheid movement was very important. Um, the uh, Stop the War movement uh, was one of the biggest in the world. The pro-Palestine movement. Many of these movements have been based upon um, the input of migrant organizers. You know, this uh, anti-apartheid movement was built in part by uh, South African migrants. Um, but even if you go back, if you look at the Chartist movement, one of the most important movements in the history of uh, British working class and the left, um, it, which fought for and in the long term won uh, the extension of democracy, the franchise to the working class, that was led by migrant workers. Now, I don't think you can build um, a real left and a real militant working class that is in some sense arbitrarily organized by, uh, you know, race and nation. Uh, you can't do that. Um, and if you try to do it, uh, the result will be you weaken and divide your own side. So I think um, there's uh, softness in the sense that I was talking about earlier. You know, Labour's uh, frightened of being, appeared, appearing to be soft-hearted and uh, all the rest of it when it comes to immigration. But there's also a kind of um, political soft-headedness which I would say is unwillingness to take unpopular positions and unwillingness to defend uh, minoritarian positions in the hope uh, that by doing so, you will start to build a base of support for them. If you're not prepared to be in a minority, uh, I don't know why on earth you're in politics. Um, the whole point of uh, being in politics is to turn minorities into majorities. The right does it all the time. They're exceptionally hard-headed. They're exceptionally ruthless and brutal about it. I think we should consider doing that as well. Um, and that's, that's what I would say about softness. Was uh, you go back to the 1980s and see kind of the very beginning kernels of the rise of maybe the far right, but also the idea of Brexit in Thatcherism. Was Brexit inevitable with Thatcherism? No, I don't think so. I mean, let's be clear, Thatcher was pro-European. She was in favor of uh, she was one of the major uh, forces behind the single European Act. Uh, passed in 1986, which established the basis for what became the European Union. Um, she was in favor of uh, free movement at that time. She was in favor of um, shared political uh, and market structures. What she did later was she turned against um, aspects of the European project because she was opposed um, to uh, some fairly mild uh, sort of human rights uh, labor law and environmental regulations that were brought in in the era of Jacques Delors, uh, the, being the commissioner, the European commissioner. Um, and so there emerged a pretty uh, nationalistic uh, turn uh, in British Thatcherism. I mean, it's always been nationalistic in, in certain ways, but it became very pronounced. Um, so the Sun newspaper, which was the most popular newspaper in the country, this was a time when newspapers were still read, um, it was the most popular newspaper in the country, and it um, was the official 
uh, tabloid organ of Thatcherism. And it started to run uh, front pages uh, demonizing European politicians, you know, uh, headlines like Up Yours, Delors, and so on. Um, and this was, uh, you know, the, the beginning of some of this, but by no means was any of this inevitable. I mean, really, if you want to understand how it came about um, and the point at which it probably did become inevitable, which, by the way, even in the months leading up to the actual uh, referendum outcome, it wasn't clear that, you know, people would vote leave um, because, you know, it was only in the final few weeks that a sufficient number of southern middle-class Tory voting uh, individuals um, who had previously gone along with uh, David Cameron and his Remain position shifted to the other side. And I think they shifted probably over the issue of immigration. Um, but if you want to understand how that situation came about, how we even uh, got to the point of having a referendum, you have to look at Britain between 2010 and 2015. Britain between 2010 and 2015 is a country that has just undergone undergone the worst crisis of capitalism since the 1930s. The left has been unable to do anything about it. The left has been nowhere. Instead, the major initiative has been uh, held by the political centre, um, who are implementing harsh neoliberal austerity. Um, in that period, there is um, a, a series of movements. There's an anti-austerity movement. It goes nowhere. There are, trade, there are trade union strikes against austerity. They go nowhere. There's a student movement. It dissipates within a couple of months. There are riots, which basically are used as the basis for, um, you know, um, uh, a serious social crackdown. Judiciary um, were let off the hook. Uh, in order to go after rioters. Um, and so after that point, almost every single major shock in British politics, from uh, revelations of child grooming rings in the north of England, which were attributed to Pakistani men, uh, it was a lot more complicated than that, as you can imagine, but of course it was heavily racialized in its media representation, to panics about um, halal food, being fed to non-Muslim Britons in, for example, Pizza Hut, to panics about Romanian and Bulgarian migrants coming to the United Kingdom in large numbers as um, they were uh, admitted to the European Union. All the rest of it, almost every single panic was an issue over um, uh, race, over nation, and, and it was something that drove the political consensus further to the right. Um, so that even as the government was a sort of middle-of-the-road conservative liberal coalition implementing austerity, but by and large not pushing things to the right, even, for example, passing uh, laws permitting gay marriage um, and, and some fairly mild laws uh, entrenching civil liberties, um, the feelings on the ground were being pushed to the right. Um, so, you know, you had a lot of uh, what I would describe as sort of uh, jitteriness, anxieties, a sense of uh, things in decline, a sense of people losing something, and nothing's really fair. You know, the austerity agenda isn't working out in such a way as to protect the poor and the most vulnerable. It's protecting the rich, it's protecting bankers. And so there's a sort of circulating sense of anger, injustice, anxiety, fear, 
and the right are the ones who are articulating that and are gaining the most momentum and are gaining attention in the national press. And that's crucial, of course, because, of course, as I mentioned, the national press has been talking about white working class grievance for uh, well over a decade by that point. And suddenly UKIP uh, are describing themselves as the voice of the white working class and the media, you know, gives them blanket coverage. So they are able to uh, exploit that situation. And as a result of that, they become the most dynamic political party in the United Kingdom. They're not the biggest, but they are the ones setting the agenda. So it's a party of middle-class protest, almost no support from any of the big class battalions like the trade union movement or the uh, Confederation of British Industry or any of that. It's a very small party of middle-class protest, but because of a crisis of representation, a crisis of British politics, and all these affects of fear, anxiety, and resentment burning in the British psyche, they are able to articulate that and drive the political agenda. And they focus the political agenda on the issue of Europe, an issue which until that point had been a concern to about, I don't know, two or three percent of the electorate. Suddenly it becomes the biggest issue. Um, and, you know, that's, that's how we ended up there. Some of this comes out of the affect driving Thatcherism, but it's actually uh, it's, it's a much more recent phenomenon. I have just a couple more questions for you. You write that, uh, like discounting evidence of a working-class Tory revival, quote, it would also be complacent to overlook the disorienting effect the vote has had on Labour, its successful vote in 2017, despite its electoral revival. Why did Labour doing well in the vote disorient Labour? What does it say to you? What does it reveal to us about Labour when they respond to, clo- uh, you know, doing their best in the uh, vote in decades with being disoriented. Oh, no, no, no. I Sorry, I should uh, clarify what I'm talking about there. The vote that I'm referring to is actually the Brexit vote in 2016. Oh, okay. Um, that, so, I mean, and the reason why it disoriented them was because, of course, prior to the referendum, there was a very clear position for Labour to take. Um, Corbyn would have been a traditional anti-European Benite politician, you know, sort of traditional uh, British socialist, but uh, he had no way of uh, leading a left-wing Brexit campaign in 2016. That just wasn't going to happen. The the, the Labour Party was not going to have it. The trade union movement wouldn't have had it. So overwhelmingly, um, the position on the left was we've got to remain in the European Union, but Corbyn quite rightly said, in my opinion, you know, if we're going to remain, we have to reform the European Union. It's too undemocratic. It's too neoliberal. Uh, We need to change its rules so that we can, um, you know, have a government that is able to use uh, industrial policy, um, that is able to use certain non-competitive measures, and so on and so on. Um, So uh, they, they had an obvious position, remain and reform. After the referendum, uh, the only realistic position you can have, I think, is to say, well, we lost that vote. We have to accept it. We have to move on. What we can do is try to limit the damage. I mean, in my opinion, um, there's absolutely what you might describe as a hard Lexit, you know, the Lexit being the acronym for left-wing exit in the European Union. 
there's there's absolutely no political basis for that. There's uh, not the social forces capable of carrying it through, and of course, there's no convincing program for it. So it's just damage limitation we're talking about, um, reducing the economic impact of Brexit um, and humanising its effects. However, there is a section of the Labour Party, a minority, it has to be said, uh, who are actively organising in favour of rerunning the referendum. Uh, with the hope of getting a different result this time. Um, and by and large, there is a sort of a feeling among the rank and file, which is not a particularly um, developed feeling. Um, it's not grounded in any profound commitment to European institutions, but there's a general feeling that, yeah, probably we should remain within the European Union. And it's just based on hatred of the right. It's based on hatred of racism. It's based on being pro-migrant, not wanting to be swept up into anti-immigrant racism and so on. And to that extent, quite creditable. But unfortunately, I think they can't go anywhere with it. So Labour since uh, 2016 and the Brexit vote uh, has not felt able to defend the institution of free movement within the European Union. It's uh, been a bit more defensive about migration, even though Jeremy Corbyn himself has excellent uh, credentials when it comes to anti-racism and support for migrants and refugees. This is a man, let's remember, who when he won the leadership of the Labour Party, the first thing he did was he went down to a pro-refugee demonstration in central London, almost to celebrate by joining in uh, this protest. Um, that's the kind of politician he is. But he is the leader of a party whose members of parliament um, are traditionally, you know, not particularly pro-migrant, uh, and they would rather uh, swing to the right on migration than risk taking uh, what they fear might be uh, an unpopular position at the moment. So, you know, it, Labour is torn between this rank-and-file kind of Remainerism, um, if you like, this uh, uh, sort of nebulous uh, feeling in favour of staying within the European Union and a sort of uh, more cautious, sort of nationalist-leaning uh, kind of feeling among Labour MPs, quite a lot of Labour MPs, um, and some, not all, but some of the shadow cabinet, some of the people who are most closely aligned with Jeremy Corbyn, um, also in favour of some kind of what you might describe as left nationalism. And that has an unfortunately uh, long history on the British left, um, and a, uh, quite a strange one in my opinion. But um, So that's one of the reasons why it's been disorienting, because as long as they're talking about things like um, nationalising utilities, uh, redistributing wealth, opposing wars, you know, all of this sort of stuff, there's a clear... Um, radical agenda that Labour can pursue and uh, they can have some sort of initiative. Um, when it comes to Brexit, there's there's no, how to put this, there's no radical position on Europe available. I mean, there just isn't. Not in terms of anything you can practically do. The radical position presumably would be to challenge the European Union on a left-wing basis, but that's just not viable at this point. So, all positions that Labour can take at this point are about damage limitation and defensiveness, um, about trying to avoid the Conservatives, for example, using the opportunity of leaving the European Union to shred even those minimal protections of workers' rights and standards um, or environmental protections 
or uh, consumer protections and so on. Um, Labour has to somehow stop them from doing that. That's basically what we're talking about here. That's, uh, you know, that's why Labour are um, anxious for this issue to be settled so that they can move on to talking about stuff that they are much more comfortable talking about. But I think at some point they're going to have to confront the issue uh, of uh, race, racism uh, and nationalism. And they're going to have to confront it in a fairly direct way if, that is, the, uh, they want to continue to drive to the left. Uh, if, uh, if they don't, then I think the result will be you'll end up with uh, a version of what used to be called blue labor, you know, which uh, combines a certain um, uh, sort of traditionalist social democratic approach to the economy with right-wing nationalistic policies. Uh, Morris Glassman, Lord Morris Glassman, who was um, the inventor of the blue labor label uh, under the leadership of Ed Miliband, uh, and briefly had some cachet with the leadership, had the slogan, faith, flag, and family. And that's what he thought Labour should be about. Um, you know, it's that white working class stuff again. Um, so that, that, that's the reason for the disorientation. We have been speaking with writer and broadcaster Richard Seymour. He's talking to us live from London. This the the last time Richard was on our show was back in 2017, uh, right before or right after the elections that unexpectedly showed major gains by labor. Richard has a new article at his Patreon page, patreon.com slash Richard Seymour WTF called Brexit and the White Working Class, which we've been discussing with Richard this uh, today. So, uh, Richard, one last question for you. And as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Or I'm just going to uh-huh. hate. Or I'm just going to hate this question. I, I, I don't even know if this is a good question or not. It just sounds like a good question. Uh-huh. What effect will Brexit, when implemented, have on Thatcherism? Oh, it's, it's not a bad question, actually. You know, I thought the question was going to be, uh, "What am I in trouble for on social media?" Which would be, <laughs> to which the answer would be everything. Um, <laughs> On any given day, uh, as regards um, the effect of this on Thatcherism, I think we have to say that Thatcherism as a political formation um, doesn't exactly exist anymore um, in its traditional sense. Uh, what we saw after the period of what we might call hoped Thatcherism, you know, in the 1980s, was an adaptation um, to a new uh, post-Thatcher consensus, which more or less uh, you know, whether it's the Liberal Democrats, as it was at the time, the um, Labour Party or the Conservatives, more or less all converging around a series of uh, policies and priorities um, in terms of government, in terms of statecraft. Um, and these are the policies and the priorities established by Thatcher, right? So we've been, um, since the um, credit crunch, we've been living in the aftermath of a crisis for the post-Thatcher consensus. What you could say is that UKIP um, and the right wing of the Conservative Party represent one way of developing uh, Thatcherite ideology. You know, Thatcherism always contained lots of different elements. It had its very liberal wing, um, sort of very free market, very socially liberal. Uh, They were what were called the Thatcherite mobs. 
And then you had the um, people who were in favor of free markets, but they were much more in favor of things like, uh, you know, school discipline, uh, the death penalty, you know, controlling borders and so on. Uh, very much more socially authoritarian and much more interested in waving the flag. And they would be what used to be called the, the, the rockers. That's right, rockers. It was the rockers versus the mod. Um, and essentially, um, this was the uh, division. And what you can see is that um, the latter group have very much come to the fore. Um, the sort of traditionally socially liberal but very right-wing free marketeers um, uh, have become the dis- uh, the dissenters within the Conservative Party. You can see people like Michael Heseltine and Kenneth Clark, both of whom were leading figures in the Thatcher era, in Thatcher era cabinets, um, were a big part of the um, government that smashed the backbones of the organized working class in this country, uh, broke the, tra- uh, the trade unions, broke the miners, broke the steel workers, broke the print workers, used... Uh, and brutal methods to do so. Today, they're regarded as bleeding hearts and liberals because they're against Brexit, um, because they're not um, the kinds of social authoritarians uh, that UKIP are, because they don't care about issues like uh, gay marriage, and they're not particularly bothered about um, ending free movement within the European Union. Um, So that's uh, that's one of the ways in which Thatcherism has basically, I think, split apart over the issue of the European Union. And as Brexit goes ahead, and I'm pretty sure it will, um, whether on the uh, basis of a deal or not, um, I'm fairly confident that what's going to happen is there will be a, a realignment of the sort of socially liberal faction of Thatcherism, as you might call it, with um, the right-wing leaning, centre-seeking parts of Labour and uh, the more neoliberal elements within the Liberal Democratic Party. In other words, you might see a new centre formation um, representing um, the parts of Thatcherism that are still consensual for British business and for um, the centre of the uh, British political establishment. So that's that's roughly where I'm going. That's that's fascinating, Richard. I really appreciate you being back on our show again. That's Richard Seymour. You can find his writing at Patreon.com/slash Richard Seymour WTFs. Thank you so much for being back on our show, and I promise it'll be far sooner than uh, 15 months from now that you'll be back on our show. Can I can I say something? Sure. Okay. Uh, Salvage, the magazine I'm a uh, founding editor on, um, is launching its own Patreon. So it's not just my Patreon. Salvage has a Patreon. If you like Salvage, come on our Patreon and support us. Thank you. Is it patreon.com slash salvage? Do you know? Patreon.com slash salvage, salvage.zone. Okay. That's the word, salvage.zone. Okay. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it, Richard, and I'll go sign up for that right now. All right. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Hell, where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. Black women have been fighting for black humanity, for being seen as human by white society since the colonial era. And now in our era of mass incarceration, they are continuing that brave tradition. We'll learn how when we talk to scholar and writer 
Dr. Damaris B. Hill, author of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, The Incarceration of African-American Women, from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland. Speaking of our horrible business model, where we stupidly put people like you before profits, that's really dumb. On Patreon this week, I watched the National Network TV News, so you didn't have to. And that might be the last time because I'm getting sick of watching that crap and actually knowing less about the world around us by watching the news. My take on the news is a madcap romp through the nightly offerings by the networks and the extent to which their coverage is really, really dumb and unintentionally hilarious. We then shared our latest chapter in our ongoing Patreon-only series and oral history of the Iraq wars that happened here live on This Is Hell. This time it was our interview from March 15, 2008 with Nir Rosen, author of In the Belly of the Green Bird, The Triumph of the Martyrs in Iraq. We had uh, Nir on the show to talk to us about his Rolling Stone article that had just been published, The Myth of the Surge. Remember how the surge turned the tide of the Iraq War? Well, don't remember that. Because it's not true. And it didn't happen. And we were telling our listeners the whole thing was a lie way back. Right when it happened. Nier wasn't the first person on the show, but he, he did a much better job of analyzing the myth of the surge than our first guest did. And it was he also had like a few months to look back on it in a retrospective way, so... But a really great interview. You got to hear that. If you think that the surge was a success, then you got to go to Patreon.com/slash This Is Hell and listen to our classic interview from 2000 and what did I say eight with Nir Rosen. This is Hell. So far ahead of the curve, we've gone careening over the ledge, and we've exploded like a car from a 1970s police show. But again, you can only hear that and another 150-plus Patreon podcast we have already done, each featuring a new monologue for me in a classic interview that is otherwise not currently available online by going to patreon.com slash thisishell. We want to thank the people who joined us this week. Special thanks to Ray and Brock. Thanks for joining us on Patreon this week. We now have 325 people following us on Patreon. And I've done some cal- calculating, and we need, need a lot more than that to keep this train wreck to oblivion going. You can help us get closer to that goal by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. On next week's Patreon podcast, we'll be playing our 2009 interview with Marcelo Balve, who had just posted the Mar- uh, Mother Jones article, A Year Without a Mexican, Undocumented Workers, where the economic lifeblood of small towns like po- Postville, Iowa, until the immigration cops showed up. Yep, 10 years ago, we were talking to guests who explained the negative impact on the economy caused by immigration crackdowns. I told you we were ahead of the curve. Our question from hell for our listening audience is, what are you in trouble for online? What are you in trouble for online? We are going to give you all the responses after our next guest. You can leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You still have a chance at winning the prize of This Is Hell stainless steel coffee mug, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. So now let me throw all this stuff over here. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, black women, even incarcerated black women, are on a mission for black humanity. And during A Moment of Truth, Jeff Dorchin handles the dinosaur problem. We also want to thank some listeners for supporting and sharing the show online, and we'll have the question from hell in just a few moments. 
Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. African American women have been fighting for black humanity to be seen as human since the colonial era, and much of that fight has been done by courageous women who were targeted by by the law for exercising their rights. Here with a love poem for incarcerated black women who have fought for humanity, scholar and writer Damaris B. Hill is author of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, the Incarceration of African-American Women from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland. Welcome to This Is Hell, Dr. Hill. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to be here and speak with you about it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Dr. Hill is a writer whose books include her most recent work, The Fluid Boundaries of Suffrage and Jim Crow, Staking Claims in the American Heartland. You can find out more about Damaris at DamarisHill.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at Damaris Hill. You start by citing the sentencing uh, project reporting between 1980 and 2016, the number of incarcerated women increased by more than 700 percent. Mm-hmm. How does that compare with other groups under mass incarceration? Are women uh, inordinately, uh, differently uh, criminalized now during this era of mass incarceration than they were prior to this era of mass incarceration? I think so. And I think um, looking proportionately, women are being incarcerated at higher rates and more more increasingly. Um, And, you know, there are a lot of factors that are at play. Oftentimes people talk about you know, the surge in the war on drugs and the multiple um, decades and years that it takes for those types of laws to be incorporated and then the sentencing to actually take effect in um, the local, state, and federal court systems. Um, But we can also look at um, the impact of the war on drugs and... the changing um, labor requirements in the U.S. to look at issues of, like, poverty and actual uh, what it takes to sustain a family in our current time and space and how that is somewhat um, being destabilized as compared with previous eras in American history. You write how your book is, and you don't have to write this, your book is a collection of poems that honor black women who have had experiences with incarceration. You write, they were inspired by current events and historical framings of black women freedom fighters such as Harriet Tubman, Asada Shakur, and Uh Sandra Bland, some of whom have organized or inspired resistance movements over the last two Uh centuries. Many of the poems detail the violent consequences black women endure while engaged in individual and collective acts of resistance. Uh, are individual and collective acts of resistance by black women any more targeted with violence than other acts of resistance or tar- targeted differently in any other in any way? Are acts of resistance more criminalized when they're done by black women? Well, I think there's an assumption in the American memory and culture that um, black women actions are not innocent because we in the United States and in many parts of the world, we have a weird way of defining things by what they are not and oversimplifying definitions in very polarized way. So if white women are innocent victims, then black women 
by assumption and cultural memory do not have access to those same presumptions. And so I think that along with the um, the economy of private prisons and uh, some of the, the quotas that are associated with incarceration, uh, coupled with the access to finances and, um, you know, the rising addiction rates in the U.S. And all of these things, I think, make Black women who, particularly Black women that are poor, more vulnerable to bias and positions that would have them enter the court system. We recently were speaking with Michael Denzel Smith about an article he had mm-hmm. at Harper's Magazine, and he was talking about how one of the problems that he has the uh, uh, the article is about media gatekeepers, white media gatekeepers. Okay, and he was talking about how um, that. Uh, Often when you have a black public intellectual go into the white media, they have to first start with discussing the pain and the oppression and like uh, explaining that there actually is physically violent racism that African-Americans face every day. And he said that problem with having to start every one of those conversations like that is it sets up a tone and a framing for the conversation and a distraction uh, that it can be seen as victimization. Do you see a problem when you interact with the media where you have to first explain that racism does exist in order to continue the conversation? Is that the first thing that you have to do is justify or rationalize your belief that racism does exist? Well, I don't find myself um, in in that particular situation. So we we number one, I think we need to start with my inspiration for this type of research project and this, uh, this particular approach to understanding culture is I came across the statistic about incarceration in a very casual way. And because I love Black women and because I love humanity, this issue became important to me. So it wasn't racially motivated or wasn't motivated by my career ambitions. I didn't even know that these poems would eventually become this collection. This is my third first poetry manuscript. This is the third evolution of this poetry manuscript. And about two-thirds of the second evolution of the poetry manuscript is sitting in a different space. This happens to be the poetry manuscript that specifically talks about Black women in incarceration, which is important to me. And race as a construction, as a biological construction, is a mythology. It's a mythology. But the consequences of racism in America are real. They're very real. And you point out the kind of racism that, uh, for instance, your grandmother experienced. Mm-hmm. You, uh, your uh, grandmother's picture opens your book. You write that as far as you know, mm-hmm. she was never formally incarcerated, but the reason you chose to honor her was, quote, because the Jane Crow styles of oppression prevalent mm-hmm. during her lifetime were careful to include violence or threats of violence for mm-hmm. accessing civil liberties. What mm-hmm. do we miss in understanding the Jim Crow era when we don't realize that there was also 
a Jane Crow set of oppressive tools that were being employed against women? Well, one of the examples in the book is this poem about um, a woman by the name of Ruby McCullum. And it also happens again when we look at Joanne Little, who is actually from the state of North Carolina and the same county that my grandmother's ancestral home is in. Um, but when we talk about Jim Crow, there is a lot of speak of the, about the violence of lynching, but there's not much talk about the violence of lynching was a parallel violence that was running next to the violence of sexual assault and sexual availability of black women to white men. Now, this, this, uh, this might be too, too lewd for the radio. I hope not. But I haven't met a man yet whose desire was racist. Now, his mind might have been racist, but his desire for a woman, I haven't met that guy yet. Whatever color that woman comes in, whatever size that woman comes in, if a man is attracted to that woman, he is attracted to that woman. Um, and so the ways that that played out in the Jane Crow South specifically is that there was an issue known as paramour rights. And uh, the anthropologist and writer Zora Hurston did some research on this. The paramour rights would be when an affluent or wealthy white man chooses a black woman within the community that he wants to have oftentimes a second family with. Now, his choice for this woman did not require her consent. But the way that the socioeconomic and cultural space was constructed is that there were no boundaries to that man's access. So in the case of Ruby McCollum, a white doctor in the neighborhood descended from people that had once owned other people had found himself fancied and attracted to her over the course of their um, entanglement. He was also elected senator. And even though Ruby was married, her fourth child was visibly his child. And many people understood that. At the time when he was murdered, Ruby McCollum was pregnant with a fifth child that we assume was also his. When she was tried, his cousin was the judge presiding over the case and shared his last name. So these are the type of socioeconomic structures and power structures that are in place for black women to negotiate. In that court case, Ruby McCollum was forbidden to speak 31 different times. The only thing that she was able to talk about was the fact that her youngest child was actually the daughter of the man that had been murdered. So that's an example of how these power structures exist and operate. That's just amazing. Let me ask you just as a follow-up on that. So Mm -hmm. I did not know about Paramore rights. I am betting that a big part of our listening audience didn't know about paramore rights. 
Something we keep coming mm-hmm. across on this show, and I'm just curious about your thoughts on this. Uh, a lot of people think that if you just inform the public, if they become informed, then they will be a, a better public. Do you think that making people more informed about things like paramour rights that happened during the Jim Crow era, do you think that people being more informed about this, how far does that go towards addressing racism or isn't information enough? Well, I don't know if information and isolation is enough, but I believe in the human spirit and I also know that race, like ending racism or trying to end racism is very hard, hard work, particularly when everyone in the United States, just by default of the way that our cultural, uh, our culture is constructed, is kind of raised in a white supremacist environment. So like I was, I grew up with very progressive parents. And one thing that my father told me when I was very young, is many people are racist and they don't even know it, right? And so that's that's an approach that I come to when I talk about racism and I teach about racism in America. And so I do think the conversion process from uncivil acts in society to mutual respect and acts of humanness happens individually. But I hope that more information can be a part of that transformation. I hope that even if people continue to be racist before they commit that racist act, they remember or acknowledge that it is a racist act rather than dismissing it. And maybe some people will not be racist or as racist anymore. Right. You know? Uh, you write that Jane Crow types of oppression could also affect one's mental health, inciting mania mm-hmm. or mental illness, fracture a wise woman's intellect, as they did so many other black women mm-hmm. in America. The violently enforced codes of Jane Crow oppression place restrictions on my grandmother's body and inadvertently on her mind. Is that the end goal, do you think, of racial oppression, of racism, to restrict, if not fracture, the intellect of its victim? if it's to fracture the intellect, but I think it's to rig the system. So let me say, I do not know many Black women who are not really, really smart. And I'm not saying that they are born biologically smarter, because I do not believe in biological determinism. But I do believe that if you're negotiating power in a system or in in an environment, I don't even want to say a system, in an environment that says because you're a woman, you need to chillax and relax and step back. And because you're a black person, you need to relax and chill back. And you're entitled to these things under the Constitution, but you also need to wait till I'm ready to get around to you, right? And I think that type of power negotiation, coupled with the fact that resources are often less accessible for black women, creates a certain type of strategy-oriented living. That you really complexly think about things before you attempt to negotiate space. So something very simple, for example, let's say if you are a young single mother and uh, you you don't really um, earn let's say, a living wage, right, of 
$32,000 a year. Your child comes down with a cold because the the nearest medical facility appointment doesn't happen until next week. You may need to get your child some cough medicine. So the strategy comes into place. Do I walk to the nearest store and pick up just any cough medicine or do I think about who might have the the largest amount of cough medicine at the cheapest price and the best dosages so my child can be well until I can get my child into the doctor. And those are the kinds of choices that you might have to make if you live in a space where, um, like, let's say pharmacies are not readily accessible. So just like grocery stores aren't always accessible in, um, in oppressed communities. So that may require some form of negotiation. Um, in terms of transportation, it may require negotiation in terms of child care. It may require negotiation in terms of resources. And so it's a whole strategic approach to simply picking up some cough syrup so your child's uh, pain is eased. Something that we take very much for granted, I think, when we live in areas that are not depressed. You also write about how during the Jim Crow era, even if you weren't incarcerated, you would feel imprisoned. Do you all, mm-hmm. does that feeling, to what degree does that feeling still linger to this day from the Jim Crow era? Oh, um, I undo those feelings all of the time. Because, let me start here. I am committed to my freedom more than I am committed to recognizing oppression in my individual life. So if it looks like a boundary or a border that's based on a mythological hierarchy that's rooted in race, gender, or some type of elitism, I immediately ignore it. I am always in cultural spaces that people assume are culturally white. I'm always present in those spaces. And I try to be present as my cultural, authentic self. You know that's so. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. You're, 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 no, you're making you're making really great points. I just have you know. I just wanted to ask you because <laughs> uh, you you write that writing a poem, uh, writing poems about such black. I would call them her- heroic incarcerated black women mm-hmm. uh, has forced me to question what it means for a black woman to engage in resistance within this particular time in this specific space. I concluded yeah. that it means that I must give myself permission to love, wail, mm-hmm. weep, grieve, call on yeah. ancestors. We were talking to Dar Jamal last week. He has a new book called The End of Ice. And he said this is a time that we should be grieving for the globe, uh, for the, uh, the planet because that's the only way I we can move forward. Uh, you say begin a daily ritual of resistance, even if it is rooted in my fears. It means understanding the fluidity of my emotions, like wanting to grab mm-hmm. a gun and turn it toward my th- threats before setting it inside my mouth and then finally locking it away. What mm-hmm. do you mean by that? Why does questioning what it means for a black woman to engage in resistance within this particular time in this specific uh, space lead you to mm-hmm. that kind of feeling? Okay, well, I'm going to, I don't know if this is the right answer, but I'm going to start with the answer that's coming to me now. So 
I've recognized um, that I'm a black woman that has two PhDs and that's a certain type of social currency that other black women may not be able to, or other people may not be able to access. But that's the immediate memory. My long-term memory knows and understands very clearly that I in no way see myself intellectually superior to other black women I know. It is a black woman right now that's surviving on an income below the poverty level, that's figuring out how to send her child to college. Like, that woman is smart. You know, I also think about people like Zora Neale Hurston and Anna Julie Cooper, who were denied the opportunity to have PhDs in the United States because of their race and gender. And then I think that so much progress or social progress has been made particularly following eight years of hope in this society, right? Eight years of a somewhat visible representation that uh, the polarities associated with racism were at least shifting in popular culture because of the presence of the former first family, Michelle and Barack Obama, and their children and mother. Um, And then. In 2014 and 15 and 16, to watch the surge of violence against African Americans and the media surge of articulating and um, showing uh, this type of violence over and over and over again, I, I think is. If you if you weren't depressed during that time, then I really have to question uh, the stability of, of of your emotions and your humanity. You know, um, any human being, I think, cannot be confronted with those levels of violence and um, not not be impacted by them, and so that. I think that's what I was saying, like allowing myself to process that information, be impacted by the information. And ultimately, part of the part of the stories in this book came from me making a decision that, okay, I'm not number one, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to kill myself. Number two, I do not want to live a depressed life from now until this sentiment becomes less popular in American culture. But what I do need to learn to do is how to negotiate power in my human and negotiate humanity under these circumstances. And the people that I knew that knew how to do that were black women that had experienced similar things or even more intense oppression historically. I want to uh, quote one of your poems because we, you know, it's it's really it's difficult to do an interview with poetry without people having the poetry in front of them. And so I'm not going to be able to mm-hmm. cite your entire poem, but I want to talk about one part of it. You write in your introduction to your poem about Sandra Bland. Sandra Bland was 28 years old when she was found hanging in a jail cell in Waller County, Texas, three days earlier 
Bland was pulled over and stopped for a minor traffic violation that resulted in her arrest because she attempted to defend herself. Although her death was initially ruled a suicide, it is a fact that the Texas County and FBI determined that the Waller County Jail and the arresting officer failed to follow required policies. Mm -hmm. In September 2016, Bland's mother settled a wrongful death uh, lawsuit against the county jail and police department for $1.9 million. It is important to note that prior to her arrest, Bland curated and documented her protests of police killings on various social mm-hmm. media sites. So that's really mm-hmm. using the hashtag Sandy Speaks. Now, in your poem mm-hmm. on Sandra Bland, you write, It could have been me, with three mm-hmm. degrees creased into the front seats, bits of the Constitution in my veins, like Braille, the Declaration tattooed inside my eyelids. How many times did Sally Hemings have to hear about them and affirm uh, the tiny ego of Tom? before he bears himself to his brothers collecting their boastings, forgiving his debts. Can Mm -hmm. activism and a constant focus on your rights that you're being deprived of, can that lead to problems with police? Can knowing your rights be a problem when interacting with police? Yes, and I think it can be a problem. If not with police, I want to say with individuals, that are serving in the role of police officers. And one thing that I do in that poem that we won't have time to explore, but I hope your listeners will have an opportunity to read that poem, is it makes a turn from being inside of the head of of Sandra Bland to considering what could have been on the officer's mind before he even met Sandra Bland. And so in order for these acts of violence, I think, to happen against Black bodies, these officers or people that may be committing these acts of violence to people they do not know or do not have a previous relationship with, I think it comes with some type of weight or rehearsed memory where the the um in this case for a lack of a better term the murderer or um the arresting officer again i'm speaking improvisationally so I'm, my my words may not be specific as, as i want them to be but what kind of weight in terms and assumptions did he already bring to the conversation with Sandra Bland when they met during that traffic altercation. What were the assumptions that he already brought? Clearly from the video, we know that Sandra Bland, the assumptions that she brought with her is that I'm a U.S. citizen and I need to know what part of the law I have broken for me to be pulled over and what are your intentions when approaching me and touching my body. And I think those are all valid questions. But the the missing X factor for me are what were the assumptions that the officer brought to the arrest? And that's the kind of thing that you can only really do well with poetry. And I just want to point out mm-hmm. before I ask you my final question, uh, the uh, one of the really, really interesting things about your book 
is that the structure of each poem reflects the person who the poem is about. So Ida Mm -hmm. B. Wells does all this statistical uh, accumulation for lynchings that happen in the United States, and you set that Mm -hmm. up as kind of a mathematical equation. And I just thought it's just fascinating the way that you structure the different poems to reflect the different people. So our listeners should definitely check out this book. These are really great poems. You can really spend a lot of time looking over them and thinking about them a lot. But in the meantime, I've got one last question for you. We've been speaking with scholar and writer Damaris B. Hill, author of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, The Incarceration of African-American Women from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland. Our final question for each and every one of our guests, we call it the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write about your experiences serving in the United States Air Force and contrast them with your experiences as a mother of a civilian who happens to be a black Mm -hmm. man and a target of police brutality and the racist backlash that is articulated as political and social psychological violence. As Mm -hmm. a service member, to what degree do you feel complicit in the system that fosters the police violence and that now targets your son both physically and more importantly psychologically well the the answer that i'm going to give is i kind of explore that in the piece uh the patriot and the prisoner in that piece uh literally is um an illusion to another armed service veteran who was also uh, won the Pulitzer Prize in poetry, in Yusuf Komiaka. And in his piece, Ode to the One-Legged Soul, he talks about um, a prisoner of war um, in Vietnam and how the guard of that prisoner of war announces every time a Black civil rights leader has been killed. And basically questions the um, the African American or Black prisoner of war, like what are you fighting for? Um, and so that piece is definitely an homage and kind of a a literary allusion to that piece. My my piece, the Patriot and the Prisoner, and where I not only explore my individual service, but it's important to say that my father is a veteran of Desert Storm that my grandfather fought in the Korean and Vietnam Wars, and that he was very instrumental in developing some of the technology that we use today. My grandfather was. Wow. Um, right. And and actually, that picture that opens up the book is a picture of my grandmother when her and my grandfather were living in Germany, because that's when my grandfather was stationed, he, because he... Um, helped develop some very special technology and helped to oversee some important information in the 50s in that area, right? And so um, I don't only explore it as an individual, but I explore it intergenerationally. Like, what does it mean if I am held prisoner by civilian paramilitary people, such as police officers? And I do not think this is true. But many people that have served in the military and in the armed forces see uh, the paramilitary forces as a lesser force. Let's be clear, right? And um, I don't see them as unequal, but many people do. That is an assumption. 
Now, I don't think that police officers should have access to military-grade weapons because they haven't been trained properly to use that equipment. But that's something different than thinking that they are less than. I do not think they are less than. Um, But I'm playing with that whole notion of authority, right? Like, if this person that is guarding me in this moment thinks that they have racial superiority in terms of being an American, let me explain to you that it is not likely that your ancestors have been in this country longer than mine. It's not likely, right? It's not likely that your sacrifices that you made for the United States of America are greater than the generational sacrifices that my family has made to the United States of America. It is not likely that a paramilitary person that has not served in the military would even have the security clearance to investigate the contributions that my family has made. And yet, the same person may feel that they are the authority over my son, who could have one day been your president because of the investments we have made, right? And so, yeah, yeah. that's what that's about. Well, Damaris, I got to tell you, this is a fantastic book. I really appreciate you being on our show. Scholar and writer Damaris B. Hill, author of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing. Find out more about her at DamarisHill.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at Damaris Hill. Thank you so much. Can I say one more thing? Sure, sure. Okay, please, if you're interested in hearing more of the poem, buy the book, number one. But two, you can also uh, catch a reading I did at Politics and Prose on February 1st on C-SPAN, 11 p.m., Eastern Standard Time, February 10th. 11 p.m., February 10th. I am going to put okay. that into my DVR <laughs> right now. Thank you very much, Damaris. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you in trouble for online? What are you in trouble for online? All replies right on air right now. Our favorite wins. Uh, this is Hell Stainless Steel Coffee Mug, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Alex, you have all the answers to this week's question from Hell. What are you in trouble for online? Let's hear them. What are you in trouble for online? Court H says, radicalizing boomer deadheads with IWW posts. <laughs> Warren L says, posting while drunk. Obviously, hold on, let me put Jack V on hold. There you go, boss. Look at that. Oh, okay. Oh, no. We're good. Thanks. Uh, Becca D Thanks, says, <laughs> I, got, I got in trouble with Facebook for saying white trash. They banned a post where I use the term, citing it as hate speech. But can it be hate speech if I myself am spawned by people who would tear up a wake, uh, Jerry Springer audition without so much as a wake and bake? <laughs> Sam P says, emailing my landlord four times in one day because they wouldn't put uh, they wouldn't get back to me about the eviction proceedings. <laughs> Ooh. Adam A says, I don't know. Just add online to the end of my co- fortune my fortune cookie and uh, we'll go with it. <laughs> Joshua L says, I keep trying to unionize all of my Costco's, my job, in the Costco underground group when drunk. <laughs> what are you in trouble for online? Lawrence C said, I have trouble understanding and answering online questions. <laughs> Mark S says, I'm not saying, but I'll probably shouldn't. I, I'm not saying, but I probably shouldn't make a pilgrimage to the Holy Lands anytime soon. Nick E says, I was the stunt dick for Jeff Bezos' dick pic, and now he's get it, decided to throw me under the bus. Everyone's going to know it's me. <laughs> what are you in trouble for online? Oh, a person who said, please don't use my name on air. 
uh, who I almost used his name on air, said, <laughs> While staying at a Hampton Inn, I went downstairs to use the business center computer. Some grandma had forgotten to sign off Facebook. I browsed around her feed for a few seconds and made some nice posts uh, and found some nice posts from a granddaughter or niece. I made a post from grandma that said, Nice pics. Got any nudes? I signed off and went back to my room and waited for the local sheriff to knock on my door. So far, I'm still at large. <laughs> Oof. Wow. Astrodan said, For questioning vaccine safety... <laughs> Try it, you'll hate it, or at least they will hate you. Uh, Todd K said, calling out all the white supremacists as devils. Got my Twitter account suspended permanently and routinely gets me 30 to 40 days in Facebook jail. Shrug emoji. Zach A says, all I'll say is it involved a pickup truck covered in reactionary stickers and flags in Florida. <laughs> Uh, Jacob P says these people are getting in trouble uh, call, Jacob P says calling Elon Musk a doo-doo head too many Musk stands uh. Sebastian M said spreading communist propaganda slash gritty memes <laughs> Aaron D said exchanging my Ariana Grande for an Ariana Venti repeatedly <laughs> oh, boy you're in trouble with us <laughs> wow. over that one Aaron wow also, also texting pictures of my dog's privates to the National Enquirer and saying it was Bezos's dick pics Shane D said, one time I listened to Amy Goodman and then didn't have enough time for the This Is Hell podcast. <laughs> Lisa B said, I'm a lurker. I just sit back and watch the world burn online. Max I says, rate limit violations usually, including past responses to questions from hell. <laughs> Jeffy D said, tweeting a threat to separate Trump's buttocks from each other by a distance of five miles. Spencer T said, doxing Nazis. <laughs> no, really. Facebook moderators are fascist sympathizers. <laughs> that doesn't Jeremy, sound like Spencer at all. Uh, I thought he was getting in trouble for taking that funny Nancy strip I had and putting <laughs> on a uh, caption on it that I didn't put entirely, and then he also misused an apostrophe on it, but maybe <laughs> that's just between me and Spencer. <laughs> Jeremy T. says, being a leftist that is highly critical of the progressive holy grail that is unionization, warning of monopolization, political corruption, abuse of power, and pointing out the hypocrisy of a conservative mindset within a progressive framework... Basically likening the pro-unionization mindset to the political sale of militarism under the guise of humanitarianism. Okay. What are you in trouble for online? <laughs> Amy M. says, I use that Chrome extension that changes every image of Trump to a picture of a kitten, and now I have a visceral fear that every cat I see <laughs> is going to deport me. <laughs> Ladio said, I invented the acronym KILF, Kittens I'd Like to Feed. <laughs> DB says, for calling Nazi bootlickers Nazi. Yes, you, Christian S. Oh, boy. It's getting mm -hmm. personal in here. Mm -hmm. And telling people their votes are pretty much meaningless. Also, all cops are bastards. <laughs> Marie K said, easier answer. What am I not in trouble for? What are you in trouble for online? Joseph D says, using an anonymous Facebook account. Don't report me, please. YR says, I made a Facebook answer to... I made, I made a Facebook to answer questions from hell, but I also just answered on Twitter. John M. says, saying no to drugs. Stephen P. says, I'm in trouble for having the same name as Steve Perry from Journey while also being confused with Joe Perry from Aerosmith. Smiley face. He gotcha, Chuck. That's right. I totally screwed up. Uh, Fabio L. says, I got banned 24 hours from Facebook for posting a picture of an office wall where somebody had elegantly painted a motivational sentence, work gives you meaning and life, or work gives you meaning and purpose, and life is empty without it. Steve Perry is Journey. That's my mistake. A couple of responses on Twitter. Kimmy R. says, not liking everyone's kids' photos. Graham M. <laughs> says, making a fool of myself on Twitter occasionally. Third Cloud says, wanting the D DNC to honor the voice of the people, not corporate funders. Kai E.J. says, operating a file hosting site that, ex that exclusively hosts Patreon-only This Is Hell content. <laughs> EatFarts69, our friend EatFarts69, said, every now and then I'll get a wild hair and pursue a Craigslist ad for half-running van or motorcycle, driving my partner crazy with my excitement for unnecessary, unobtainable vehicles. Afropocene said, 
possession of excessive amounts of melanin. <laughs> and our friend Brian said, Reefer Madness tweets against the system of the absurd. And that's all of them? Uh, let me F5 this. F5-ing, and then hitting uh, newest. You have to do this twice. Yes, that's it. My response to the question from hell, what are you in trouble for online? <sighs> dick pics. Uh, not the kind of dick pics you think I share, but pictures of Richard Nixon and Dick Cheney online. And then I use Photoshop to replace their noses with penises. So, the winner for this week's question from hell again. What was that stupid? What are you in trouble for online? Boy, I really liked uh, Amy M's replacing Trump pictures with cat pictures and then fearing that uh, a cat is going to do Porter. I liked Kimmy R saying not liking kid photos. And I liked Lawrence saying having trouble understanding online questions. I'm going to go with Amy M. I like that deporting cats idea. That's a fantastic, fantastic answer to this week's question from Elle. Don't forget you can join us every Wednesday at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon on Wednesdays from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. for This Is Hell Office Hours. I'll give you a free book related to the show and give you some subvertising stickers so you can drop by any Wednesday at that time. All right, look, I know you have Jeffy on the line. Let's just get to him as soon as we can. One, two, you know what to do that. The dinosaurs are boned. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Things are going to change. We can try to influence those changes to raise our chances for a decent future, or we can wait for the changes to happen to us. One change that is definitely going to happen is we're going to stop using fossil fuels. We're going to stop polluting the environment. Either we'll make these changes by choice or by default. Either we will transform the way we produce and consume energy and other resources, or our present course will render us too dead to continue. Fossil fuels, it's in the name. They are fossils, old and petrified. Their time was up long ago. The oil and gas and coal oligarchy has held us it held the oil and gas and coal oligarchy has held on to its dominance over land, sea, and air by overthrowing governments, displacing and massacring entire populations, buying the governments too white to destroy and replace, and everywhere distorting elections and laws with bribery and coercion. They're not nice. They've overstayed their welcome. I think dinosaurs would be offended by our use of the term dinosaur to mean an entity whose time has passed by, who no longer understands current events and is itself, in a word, indeed, and physical incarnation, an anachronism in the culture. Cartoon dinosaurs, Gary Larson Fireside dinosaurs, would be offended. Not literal dinosaurs. They don't exist anymore. The Larson ones would consider it a derogatory term, not just as an insulting metaphor, but as an actual identifier for themselves. I'm a stegosaur, I'm a triceratops, I'm a sauropod, don't call me the D word. Actual dinosaurs are fossils. Not in the pejorative sense, they're really fossils. Their flesh has been replaced by sedimentary minerals over tens of millions of years, although some evolved into birds. But Larson sauropods and their ilk, they'd be mad. So 
out of sensitivity to cartoon prehistoric bird ancestors, I'm going to say D-word. Ha! No, I'm not. In an effort to get ahead of the coming changes, to change our behavior before the consequences of our behavior change us into corpses, the new Democratic congresspersons voted in on a wave of hatred of Donald Dump, the cartoon duck with no pants, have introduced an introduction to legislation they propose to propose. Of course, because it's intended to solve actual problems rather than placate those who cause the problems, it's being pooped on by dinosaurs and their advocates. Dinosaurs like James Carville, Nancy Pelosi, the Cato Institute, the Heritage Foundation, Forbes magazine, are throwing everything from shade to their own feces on the idea of a Green New Deal, one goal of which would be to make America run 100% on clean, renewable energy by 2030. It'll never fly. Who are these people? What are they saying? And that's not how it works. It's un-American. We've got to give the energy companies time to transition to these newfangled energies. One at a time, D-words. And by D-word, I mean dick. There are additional goals of the new Green New Deal. Less economic inequality. A single-payer universal health care system similar to the ones in civilized nations. The dicks are concerned, of course, about how this will upset the health insurance industry that causes all the health care inequality and outrageous expense in this stupid country. And if you make things more equal, what about the billionaires who enjoy hoarding obscene wealth? Has anyone considered their feelings? What if one of those billionaires was an at-risk, gay, disabled child woman of color? Then you'd be a classist, racist, homophobic, ableist, misogynist, wouldn't you? Why do you hate the person I just imagined? And those shoes are pretty nice, you so-called socialists. Why aren't they dirty and ruined? Isn't that what socialists like? A ruined, frozen old mansion full of undeserving peasants like in Dr. Zhivago? Do these young pups really think the U.S. economy is going to change into a humane, ecologically non-destructive system in only 10 years? When has something like that ever happened? At the end of 1941 the U.S. economy began to retool itself to challenge and defeat what at the time were the two biggest, most powerful armies in history. And it succeeded in less than five years. It succeeded in transforming its peacetime economy into a wartime one to thwart millions of soldiers uh, loyal to the dictatorial ideologies of two war machines developed over decades. It did it while funding the arts and public works fashioning the social security system, bringing women into the workforce, integrating the military, enacting antitrust laws, legalizing alcohol, integrating the military, and lifting the entire nation out of economic depression. So how about you dicks shut up about what's possible? We recognize you as dicks, you know. We see you. You're the ones who still thought blackface was hilarious in the 80s. I mean, why fight it, you say? It exists. The social justice, social justice is just a passing fad. It'll blow over. You don't fight problems that exist. That's no way to solve anything. Now, 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 old dicks, don't get all fossilized over it. Here's what I suggest we don't do. Let's not have the current fossil fuel companies retool to become tomorrow's renewable energy companies. Let's not have Dick Cheney's Halliburton in charge of anything. They all need to go down. They've shown they'll do anything to hang on to the power they've built, including starting wars that kill millions. So let's not invite them to the reworked economy, okay? They are mad, inhumane engines of destruction. They are dinosaurs, dinosaurs selling refined dinosaur remains. They're cannibal dinosaurs. As organizations of humans, they excel at destroying humanity. As citizens of the planet, 
they think it's theirs to rape. They are malignant tumors in civilization. They are consistently bad actors with one objective, to make money at the cost of it matters not what. While we're at it, can we not turn over the legal marijuana industry to the tobacco companies? Oh, and when sex work is legalized, let's not put pimps and sex traffickers in charge of it, okay? You dicks, get back in your Larson cartoon. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. All right, stay beautiful, Jeffy. We're up against the clock. Yeah, baby. Talk to you next week. Live from the good old U.S. of A. where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become this is hell's pimp, all you have to do is go to thisishell.com and click on support. Thanks this week goes out to the tithing-like commitment of John H. We also want to thank all the people who shared our show online this week, including Julie, Rob, Astrid, Bukata, Pete, Dan, Dennis, Lila, Rich, Turtle Island Liberation Now, Natan, Nicholas, Jan, Jeff with one F, Nick, Stephen, Flordian, Jesse, Jeremy, and Anarchimedia. Thanks to everyone for sharing This Is Hell, however you share the show. All right, anything else I want to mention real quick? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, captive, radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's uh, This Is Hell was Alex Jerry. Alex, who's on next week's show? Uh, Amanda Sperber will be on to talk about her big nation report inside the secretive U.S. air campaign in Somalia that Is just came out. Is she related to Elliot Sperber? I don't know. You said that about multiple people named I know. Sperber. Now I found three people named Sperber. So uh, Jesse Isinger will be on to talk about his big ProPublica series I really recommend called Gutting the IRS. That's pretty fascinating. And Astra Taylor will be on to talk about her new documentary, What is Democracy? That's right. I forgot that Astra was next uh, week as well. I'm trying to get a, hey, if you're listening in Chicago, I'm trying to get tickets for that too to give away. Oh, sweet. Uh, I want to thank our guests this week. First of all, thanks to Jeff Dorchin for doing the Moment of Truth. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing this week's show. I want to thank all of our guests for being on Damaris B. Hill, author of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, The Incarceration of African-American Women from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland. And that book is a fascinating book of uh, poetry, so you should check it out. Also, thanks to Richard Seymour, who wrote the article Brexit and the white working class, which you can find on his Patreon page, patreon.com slash Richard Seymour WTF, his magazine, a magazine he edits uh, called Salvage. He They also have a Patreon page, and that's at patreon.com slash salvage.zone. Also, thanks to anthropologist Jason Hickel, who returned to this to discuss his Guardian article, Bill Gates says poverty is decreasing. He couldn't be more wrong. Also, thanks to activist Lavinia Steinfort, who wrote the article The Power of Public Finance for the Future We Want, which shows that we do have the money and resources to combat climate change and inequality. And finally, thanks to urban design and critical critical theory scholar Kanishka Gunwardena, who wrote the uh, Jacobin article The Crisis in Sri Lanka. This week's hangover cure was turmeric, Fennel, ginger, mint, and lemon juice tea. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. All right, for Wesley, and this is Eric, and you're listening to 
WNUR 89.3 Chicago Sound Experiment. And it's now time for a classical and beyond, which comes at you every Saturday from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. A lot of bunch of great music. Focus on classical music of the 20th, 21st century, modern classical music. And today we're going to open up with a great piece by composer Ara Murray Schaefer. <laughs> 